VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, June the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair today. If you've been tempted to be a first-time caller, today is your day. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626 here on the first day of summer. The summer solstice is upon us. I want to say congratulations to some local golfers who have qualified to move on to attempt to represent the province in the upcoming 2022 Canada Summer Games to be held in Niagara Falls. So the boys' division, Ryan Howell and Bally Haley, a two-day total of 150, a six-stroke uh, victory over his clubmate Ethan Effort. Sam Fisher, also for Bally Haley, Daniel Sharp from the Blomenden Golf Club in Cornerbrook. They are moving along as well. In the girls' division, Mila Snook won wire-to-wire to get a uh, two-day total of 165, four-stroke victory over her sister Freya Snook. I've seen these girls play. They are tiny, and they are fantastic. Just incredible swings and really good little golfers. Boy, uh, Sanjana Gulapali of Clovelli finished in third place. So they're all going to move on to compete at the 2022 Royal LePage Provincial Championships out at the Wilds. Going to be driving it straight on that ballpark. And then they move on to the next-gen Atlantic Championships at Antigonish in Nova Scotia. Those two events will determine which of our golfers will represent the province at the Summer Games. All right, congratulations to them. It's golfing season. Game three last night uh, in the Stanley Cup Finals. You know, you got a resilient group there in Tampa Bay. You know, it's hard to knock down the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions. They bounce back with an impressive 6-2 victory over the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, they were up 2-1 after one, then they scored four times in the second to put it away. So the series now 2-1 Colorado. Let's stick with the C's for a sec. It was today in history that Columbia Records introduced the LP, the long-playing record album, the Microgroove a public demonstration at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. I was looking around trying to find out, that was in 1948, trying to find out what the record was. It was Columbia Masterworks, Mendelssohn, Concerto in E minor for violin and orchestra. The first debut of the LP, and it's still here to this day. And the city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, founded today in history in 1749. Sticking with some Halifax stuff. So Halifax-based C&D Recycling are coming to town. They were awarded a contract by the provincial government to deal with the tires in this province. So for years, we've been spending money to send our old tires to Quebec. My understanding is the vast majority of those tires would have been incinerated. So that's a problem. So Halifax C&D Recycling, they've got some projects underway. They've been in business for some 13 years to find places where they can shred the tires whether it be down in the very deep gullies when you're laying new pipe, there's some other construction applications apparently for the product. So they're coming to town. Out in CBS where the facility will be, so we no longer have to spend money to send the tires along. And I assume they'll be working towards some demonstration projects with the local construction companies, civil engineering companies to find a use for it, but probably a very good idea to not be incinerating them when all you have to do is shred them and find reasonable applications for it. And now the country today moves towards some additional plastic bans. So remember when the move was taken to ban the single-use shopping bag, right? The Sobeys bag. There was a huge uproar. People were displeased that those bags were going away. And lo and behold, it's happened pretty seamlessly. You know, the reusable bag, every time you go to the uh, grocery store or what have you, you see people walking in with the bag in their hand. It's worked. 
It simply has worked. And it's taken a lot of those plastic bags out of the trees and off the fences and just strewn all over the place. So today's ban includes or moving towards straws, takeout containers, grocery bags, cutlery, stir sticks, plastic rings that are used to hold a six-pack of pop or beer together. So in 2019, Deloitte performed a study that found that less than one-tenth of the plastic waste Canadians produced is recycling. That means there was 3.3 million tons of plastic thrown out annually. Half of that is packaging. There's a whopping a huge number of and tons of plastics that we use here in this country. The six items on the list today only make up about 5% of the plastic waste in Canada. So the effective way is to stop producing more and more plastic. These bans will indeed be helpful, but if it only represents 5%, then it's just another baby step forward. I think if you... If we, when walking into the store, even just take a grocery store or a hardware store or whatever the case may be, it's the bulk unnecessary plastic packaging like the clamshells over things like a pair of scissors. Why do we need to have so much hard plastic encasing a pair of scissors as opposed to simply hung on a hook with a little price tag around the handle and off you go? I mean, is it about anything beyond fancy packaging, industry pushing other opportunities in industry? It just seems like even when you go into the grocery store and you see a cucumber wrapped in plastic, what are we doing? You know, inside the world of reduce, reuse, and recycle, we're getting a little bit better at recycling. We're getting a little bit better at reusing, but we're terrible at reducing. There's just way too much unnecessary plastic out there. Some of the mega plastics, that becomes the tricky one. It's easy enough for the federal government to talk about plastic bags and straws and cutlery stir sticks, plastic rings, but that only chips away. And remember, plastic is not just an eyesore. It takes forever for it to decompose, forever. The microplastics that end up in the countries and the world's oceans, pardon me, it ends up in the food chain. We are consuming microplastics because of just how much plastic we produce and gets thrown away annually. So I know there's going to be people that think that this is one another, another level of stupidity on behalf of the federal Trudeau liberals, but there's just so much plastic out there that you chip away at it. But trying to get at the, the big stuff, that's where you run up against some pretty well-funded lobbyists that will be pushing their agenda on Parliament Hill. But the plastic issue, here we go. All right. And out of nowhere, once again, no rhyme or reason to it, but I guess good news, the price of gasoline, diesel, and other stove, uh, stove oils, furnace oils, down. Gas, nine cents. Again, you never know what this is all based on. And so the next scheduled uh, update will be on Thursday. So the PUB says that there's been volatile market changes, changes to pricing benchmarks, so the price of gas is down. And, of course, that's good news. Most of the provinces affected by this. Other areas of Labrador, the Straits to Red Bay, Southern Labrador, the North and South Coast, not part of Tuesday's adjustment. So a bit of savings at the pump based on what? Not really sure. But, anyways, I suppose that'll be... Good news. And as we found out yesterday after an announcement uh, late on Friday, that the recreational food fishery will open on the 3rd of July. I don't know why I was thinking about this so much yesterday, but maybe it's uh, frustration or whatever associated with the fact that we were told the delay. Because remember last year, we were told on the 29th of May that the recreational food fishery opened on the 3rd of July. Now it was all the way this late into June before we were told. And it was supposed to be some structured changes because of come home year. I don't know what that means because nothing came to pass. It's the same old recreational food fishery we've seen over the years. Five per person, 
they say limit of 15 per boat but lots of reasons to believe that if you had five people in the boat you can bring in 25 fish but you know if you want to confirm that with dfo so you don't get yourself in trouble do exactly that one thing that i was never in favor of and i think most people weren't in favor of was a tag system you know or a log book or something it, i think it'd be much more convenient than the current structure of saturday sunday monday let's just say you were able to get tags for 20 cod and you struck a good pool on one nice fine day out of Conception Bay, and you got them all that day. And so you only spent that one trip on fuel, and you got your cot. And so, you know, there's a lot of people here that are negatively impacted by it. Not everybody has the weekend off, number one. And if we have a stretch of windy weather, then that 39 days in the first summer season goes away very quickly. But anyway, you want to talk about that particular issue, I'll stick with wild, wild species in the oceans and the rivers. And the seabird biologists were questioning the cull on cormorants. It's here. So it feels a little bit haphazard. Bill Montevecchi, who we had on the program last week, says that, you know, this is basically just a free-for-all. It does feel a lot like those who may be anglers and or in the aquaculture industry, they push for this because the cormorants and the population has grown, no doubt about it. Mr. Montebecki or Dr. Montebecki goes on to say that these populations fluctuate quite clearly. He recommends a targeted, strategic approach to deal with the population versus what's actually happening here at this moment in time. No doubt, the cormorants are very efficient predators, absolutely, and they eat tons of salmon smolt from the rivers, no question. And I would imagine it looks like a feast when they fly over an aquaculture open-net uh, open pen. You know, there they are, congregated in tight order. No sweat for the cormorants to make a very easy meal in one of those aquaculture sites. But if you're out there and you see the cormorants in your area, whether you be an angler and or involved with aquaculture and or just have some concerns with how we will manipulate the very fragile equals ecosystem with this type of approach to dealing with the double-breasted cormorant. People can apply for a humane and lethal removal of these particular birds that open up on the 15th of June. Okay, and just throw this out to, to uh, fish harvesters, in particular those who going for the shrimp. Where are we in the shrimp standoff? You know, we've heard from the sea fisherman Terry Ryan, and they were going to go out and catch the 50, 60,000 pounds and steam all the way over to Nova Scotia to sell it for whatever price. Right now, at $1.42, processors are, were not buying it. So the pricing panel and the lack of wiggle room or compromise or happy medium that's unavailable to the panel because the FFAW puts in a price, the Association of Seafood Producers put in a price, and you pick one or the other. So there's always the ability for one side or the other to go back to the panel to request an adjustment. But when we have these types of standoffs, I think it begs the question of how we approach these prices, what it means for either side. Because, you know, some people, I guess, depending on who you are or where you are, you might be all in on in favor of the harvesters. And, of course, the business that is the processing sector, they have their own skin in the game. And profit's not a bad word for either group. But when we have these types of standoffs, it seems like there's something more that we could be doing. What do you think? All right. So the issue surrounding rapid antigen tests. And we know that the federal government distributed tests right around the country. And we got our percentage, 1.4% of the federal stockpile came to this province. And they were made free of charge to the K-12 system and all of those involved in. So students, staff, their families, child care services. And many of these groups have a huge number of rapid tests at home. 
while the rest of the population was forced to buy them. And they're fairly expensive, depending on where you buy them. But the province is stopping this rapid test kit program immediately at the province of schools and childcare. All right. What I get a little bit confused by is that when Dr. Fitzgerald talks about it, she says that there's a risk of false positives because the prevalence of COVID has changed. And maybe it has. But I think that remains a pretty big question. Is how do we really know what's going on out there? Look, you, me, everybody has kind of had it with all of this. And nobody, of course, as this show has tried to hold a very level head on the COVID-related matters, no need for people to be afraid. People still remain mindful, and you'll, we'll see some masking in the stores and what have you. But when we don't really know exactly what's going on out there and the prevalence of COVID in the community, then it sort of uh, seems like a stretch to me to say, well, we're stopping it simply because the caseloads are down. Well, we don't test anymore. So does anybody actually really know? And then you look at some of the wastewater results, and it looks like there is absolutely plenty of COVID in some communities here in the province. Now, I know the go-to has been learning to live with COVID, and you will act accordingly, and you will do what you think is best for you and your family and your friends. Okay. But some of those declarations, not so, so sure they jibe with what might be the reality on the ground. So the question also would be, with the test kits on hand, what's the possibility for the province to allow the general population to avail of these test kits free of charge versus going in and out of pocket? Some people might be hyper-attentive to it and have bought many kits because they don't want to bring it to their business. They don't want to bring it to their grandparents, or whatever the case may be. But they're, they are doing away with the program in the K-12 immediately. And, of course, school's just about over, so I guess some of that stands to reason. All right. You know, I heard Noah Shepard in the news talk about the fact there was a couple more armed robberies here in Metro last night. And then another shooting out in the ghouls, and the fellow has been apprehended. you got to wonder what's going on, because the young fellow who was arrested for the shooting in the ghouls is a 21-year-old guy. They're so young. His name is Brandon Chafe. It's public record. So the problem is even larger than this one incident. So this is a fellow who had no criminal record or has no criminal record, but he was arrested in late May on firearm trafficking charges. Released. Those guns and his role in it was very likely part of the crime spree in the shooting and the firebombings that we saw a few weeks ago. So at what point is bail questionable when someone is involved with guns? I'm just not really sure what the parameters will be. I see Colin in the queue. He can maybe want to chime in on this. But there's, there's something going on out there. And you would always guess that some of these standoffs between the gang rivals, wherever they may be, between CBS or Paradise or St. John's or what have you, you know full well there's got to be some involvement with illicit drugs. So, you know, we've had a couple of conversations about harm reduction policy and decriminalization and the safe supply of drugs. Where they have taken those paths, they have reduced the incidence of violent crime surrounding the drug trade exponentially. So... The story's just become endless here. Another shooting in the ghouls, so there you go. And I see Colin wants to talk about the Stephen Hopkins case, so I'll just leave it to that upcoming call because that was absolute chaos. And Stephen Hopkins has been found guilty of sexual assault and forcible confinement with the assault on a 17-year-old girl a couple of years ago. 
The courts are looking at deeming him a dangerous offender. I don't know how that's going to proceed, which just drags on the issue for the courts and, of course, Mr. Hopkins and, of course, the young girl who was victimized by Stephen Hopkins. It also begs questions about how we conduct trials regarding sexual assault. I know individuals have the right to represent themselves, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. But in serious matters like this, of course, you know the old adage that someone who represents himself has a fool for a client, but it also puts undue stress on the court and the proceedings and the victim. So there's something badly broken when that trial proceeded like the way it did, and we'll see what Colin has to say about it. Now, in a couple of minutes. So as the construction continues for a residential school survivor memorial garden here in the city of St. John's, today, the summer solstice, the 21st of June, is also National Indigenous Peoples Day. And what they're at, the indigenous community is asking for you to learn about their culture and to celebrate with them. Some of the events taking place throughout the day are not just for indigenous peoples, they're welcoming everybody. And there is a list of them to be found. And if you want to talk about it or share your story and or remember the, di the indigenous community that would like to share some interesting components of their dialect, of their dancing, of the celebrations that they think everyone should enjoy today or to fill us in about some of your culture that we may not know. And I don't pretend to know much about indigenous cultures. And I think I'm speaking from any in admitting that. So today is indeed National Indigenous Peoples Day. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And in a celebration of critical minerals and for National Indigenous Peoples Day, released today in 1971, Rare Earth released this one. I just want to celebrate. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Listener calls in to tell us that there's a moose on Major's Path making its way to the Outer Ring Road. Also, for those in the traffic, if you're in and around Thorburn Road, the intersection of Thorburn and Seaborn, there's a traffic accident there. Traffic blocked in both directions. There you go. All right, let's begin this morning. Uh, online number two. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you on this first day of summer? Feeling pretty good. How about you? Doing pretty good. I go out later and get some sunlight on my Celtic white skin, I think. Get some vitamin D going. <laughs> I got a bit too maybe much of it on Sunday, but anyway. Yeah. Maybe it might reduce my arrogance and obnoxiousness, you know? You never know. It's going to have to be awful hot out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Go ahead. No worries. I can take it. I know. If I can dish it out, I can take it, too. I'm a big boy. Okay. Uh, where are we going? Stephen Hopkins trial. Yeah. Uh, he was just found guilty of uh, breaking and entering into a residential dwelling in Count Heights and sexually assaulting a resident there, a 17-year-old girl, among other offenses. But uh, And now the Crown is uh, going to put an application before the court to have him declared a dangerous offender, which means that if, if the Crown is successful, that uh, he could be held for an indeterminate period, uh, potentially for the rest of his life. Um, before he got arrested and charged with the latest uh, round of offenses and convicted, um, he was had already been out on court orders for probation for sexually assaulting two women on a walking trail in Long Pond in 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was on the sex offender registry. Yeah, and he was, and uh, he spent a year in jail for that. And he got out as one of the conditions of his release. He was supposed to contact the police and 
uh, interact with them and, and uh, register as a sex offender under under the act. And, and he failed to do that, so the police uh, got a warrant for his arrest and arrested him on that. And then he was released again. And four days after that release for for the failure to comply with the sex offender uh, registry uh, act, yeah, four days after that, he uh, attacked this 17-year-old girl in her house in Calhite, for which he was subsequently convicted uh, last week at trial. Here you have a person who, uh, and he's only 30 or 31 years old, so he's a, you know he's a young man, but clearly uh, he just has a wanton and, and reckless disregard for uh, orders of the court, a complete disregard for the safety and well-being of other people in the community. Uh, he has no ability, in my opinion, to control his impulses and his sexual urges. Uh, and this was this was on, he's on the radar long before the uh, the attack in Calumet. So what? Why is it that when he would fail to show up to register with the police as a sex offender, and the police went and arrested him? He was brought before the court and charged with that offense, and then released. And then four days later, he's up in town, like sexually assaulting a teenage girl. So, why is it that he was released after the police should have been able to hold him for the sex for the for the breach of the, uh, the failure to uh, comply with the uh, criteria set out in the sex offender? Well, absolutely. It's the same question I asked about Brendan Chafe, who was arrested for the shooting in Ghouls yesterday after he was released after being arrested for firearms trafficking. You know, I know that they say somewhere between 70, 75% of the uh, prisoners at Her Majesty's Penitentiary are on remand. I know there might be a, uh, a capacity issue, but that can't be at the risk of public safety. Like, what is actually going on here? I don't know the parameters. I'm not a judge. I don't get to set bail or make those types of decisions. But you have to wonder how and why some of these people get back out on the street. You know, I know you're innocent until proven guilty, but weighing public the risk to public safety has got to be paramount, not how packed it is at HMP. Yeah. The uh, the, the thing with, with the, the latter case there is, and without getting without getting into the specific details of his case because it is before the courts, but uh, he has no prior criminal record, right? And that's a big you know bonus for him. Um, but there are criteria set out in the criminal code, primary and secondary and tertiary grounds for for release. And uh, it also has to be remembered that uh, you do have a constitutional right to not be denied reasonable bail without just cause. But there are some offenses like murder and I think drug trafficking uh, where there's a reverse onus. So if you're if you're charged with say murder, uh, it doesn't matter whether you have a criminal record or not, you're going to be held uh, in prison until the completion of your trial, uh, and the onus is on you as the accused uh, char- charged with that offense, say murder. Uh, to convince the court that you should be released. So there's a reverse onus, right? Usually it's the Crown that has to convince the court that you should be held. But in the case of, uh, like I said, like murder and some other offenses, the reverse onus provision applies, and uh, the onus is on the accused to, to show that you should be released. Another thing about the Hopkins trial for me is I know there's a right associated with individuals choosing to represent themselves in court, but this case was absolute chaos from day one. 
the meandering and the way that Hopkins treated witnesses. I mean, he had one RNC officer on the stand for two straight days. Justice Burge was constantly having to get, you know, light a fire under Mr. Hopkins to move on. So I just wonder, especially in some of these serious trials, and maybe specifically even sexual assault, when we know that there's already questions about the adversarial nature, and I know that's part of, you know, the criminal justice system and the proceedings in the court, but in these types of trials, I don't know of the wisdom of even allowing someone to represent themselves. And I think this is a good case study in where it is an absolute problem for the proceedings. It's a problem for the victim. It's a problem for the justice for Justice Burge and others. So I know we're not going to do away with that right, but I think there should be some guardrails as to when it's appropriate and when it's not. Well, even uh, you know somebody who has a lawyer and they decide for whatever reason that they don't want the services of that lawyer anymore, uh, they have the automatic right to fire that lawyer. And the lawyer has is legally and ethically bound to withdraw from the case if he or she no longer has the confidence of the client, right? So um, in this case, with the sexual assault case, um, because it's a sexual assault charge that that he was facing, uh, he, and he's representing himself, he doesn't he doesn't have the right to to cross examine or question the uh, the complainant directly. No. So a lawyer has to do that on his behalf, and there are other. Uh, because, because he doesn't have a lawyer, uh, the court uh, appointed an amicus curiae, or a friend of the court, to act on his behalf, to you know, to to uh, make points of uh, law arguments to the judge, and among other things, uh, that the, the, the amicus is not representing him, but is has been appointed to act on his behalf. So, and, and I know he tried to fire the amicus curiae. <laughs> you know, he, he told the, he informed the court that he wanted him fired, and uh, Justice uh, Burridge informed him that he couldn't do that because he wasn't his lawyer, right? So this is the the antics that were going on in the court. Yeah, r- ridiculous, and we'll see how it moves along here as they try to deem him a dangerous offender. He certainly seems to qualify from the outside looking in. Uh, anything else you want to add to this this morning, Colin? Well, the thing is, uh, if the Crown uh, fails to have him declared a dangerous offender. Uh, eventually, he's going to be, re- you know, maybe he'll be declared a long-term offender, but uh, he will be released back into the community. And he's only 30 or 31 years old, so he's very dangerous. Uh, obviously so. I mean, the story, the circumstances surrounding the sexual assault and forcible confinement of a teenager, uh, teenage girl is it's horrifying, to be honest. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the show, Colin. Enjoy a bit Thanks, of sun Harry. later on. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the closure of E&E, the beloved takeout out in Briggs. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Mayor Trapassi. That's Rita Pennell. Good morning, Mayor Pennell. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning uh, to you. just wanted to... Uh, to talk about the doctors in rural Newfoundland, especially Trapassi and the surrounding areas. Sure. Uh, we had two doctors here for three years. They came here on contract three years ago in May. And they were here for three years. So then it, the contract was never renewed. So then Eastern Health decided to post the position without consulting with the doctors that were here. Neither one of the doctors were invited to apply for the position. But one of them did apply. And 
That's all applied the first time they posted. Then they posted the second time because they wanted to allow for other applicants like to apply. And then after the second posting, they contacted one of our doctors and she got an interview and with standard questions, however. None of the questions related to the actual position our communities or the people here. What does that mean? So no actual questions. Kent underestimated how connected these doctors were with the community. Okay, but I'm not sure I follow the comments you made about what questions were not asked. Uh, they didn't ask any questions about uh, health or uh, the health care or anything like that or about the community or about the people. They just offered the job. And that was seven weeks later, the job was offered by Human Resources. Okay. So. And so what's the I outcome mean, the here? The questions that she wanted to answer, I guess, was, uh, you know, such as pay, pay scale, perks, etc. Like, she, they were here for three years, two days a week, and we had a nurse practitioner for three days a week. Uh, the nurse practitioner was given a car by the department and a gas card, and the doctor was offered nothing. Hmm. You know, it's important to know why doctors leave. It's important to know how we can craft a package to attract a doctor to Trapassi or wherever the case may be, because there's a big difference in wanting to work in one part of the province versus another. So what's the actual outcome here? There's a doctor been hired? Uh, nobody's been hired. Uh, they they offered her the position, but no, no no perks would say. And the same thing is like if I'm working in Trapassi, they they would want me to go to St John's and work for the same scale. I mean that's impossible. And she asked like uh, we uh, got a secondary hub. We went after that in May. Where there's a hub in Holy Road, and going and we're going to be a secondary hub in Trapassi. So, in terms of rural retention, uh, like bonuses, which is indexed based on how remote the place is, like they they didn't offer any of this. And considering the distance, as well as working far away from support, needs to be considered. We are the first from a hospital on the island. So, do do you think for? I, don't, I guess it's not the same rationale for every doctor to make every decision, but do you think it's simply a matter of money for doctors to want to work in Trapassi? Uh, uh, personally, uh, uh, the town believes now that they really didn't want doctors here because we had a doctor here. She loved the community, two of them. They loved the community, and they were never even offered a, a, a an interview or never offered a job like they put a post without offering to either one of them. But can't the doctor simply apply for the job that's been posted? Yeah, one of the doctors applied and got an interview after it was posted twice. Okay. And the job was offered to her seven weeks later with no, no, no perks, no nothing. I'll just give you an example. Uh, she she went back with three three questions, and it, well, one of them was, they want her to be in Trapassi 8.30 in the morning till 
from St. John's. So she offered to come from 9.30 to 4.30 and work her dinner hour, and they said no to that. So I think this was so disrespectful to the doctors. So no wonder rural Newfoundland can't get doctors. I guess there's got to be some flexibility afforded to recruiting. But, of course, if all of a sudden every single doctor applying for a job in one community or another gets to set their own parameters, their own hours of work, their, what they're willing to do, when they're willing to do it, at some point we've got a bit of a dog's breakfast going out there. Because, I mean, I think that was part of the conversation on Bell Island. Sounds like it's part of the conversation in Trapassi. There's got to be some structure to hiring one professional or another, including doctors. But, you know, maybe there needs to be some, some flexibility as opposed to doctors telling us exactly what they're willing to do or what they're not willing to do. Uh, that's not really the, the problem, though. I mean, we had doctors that wanted to be here. So, I mean, why wouldn't they offer them something different than if they left home to go three or four kilometers to work? I mean, it's 100 miles for doctors to come from St. John's. But the problem is, why would they offer a nurse practitioner a car and a gas card and not offer the doctors anything? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question. I don't know either. I, you know, it would be great. We don't usually get to talk to the bureaucrats behind the scenes, the deputy ministers, what have you. But with the importance of this new deputy minister role of uh, recruitment of healthcare professionals, uh, Dr. Megan Hayes, it would be great to have her on to try to pick her brain about flexibility for hiring and uh, the associated perks and how she's approaching trying to recruit a doctor in smaller communities versus the larger centers. It would be nice to know exactly what's going on in that world because, unfortunately, we really don't know. Remember back when there was a story of there was $55 million being spent in Nova Scotia on a formal plan for recruitment and retention. The NLMA asked the province to have a look at ours. The province said, oh, we have one. But then when they submitted a request for the info, it turns out we didn't really have one. We didn't have one on paper. We might have had one in our heads, but we have, didn't have it written down. I'd really yeah. like to be able to speak with Dr. Hayes. Well, I, I, I think uh, maybe you should do that. Oh, I'd love to have her on. We don't usually have any success in trying to speak to uh, any of the deputy ministers or what oh. have you, but we'll try. No problem. That'd be good. I'd like for you to try, yes. I'll Thank give it a so shot. I appreciate the time, Mayor Panel. Okay. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, yesterday, I had Sister Elizabeth and Dr. Parfrey on, and the um, health court great great initiative um and i know one of the big things are hanging the success of trying to move the province forward is on guaranteed basic income or some form of guaranteed income for people and when i was engaged in the process uh you know i i just kept reminding everyone that we we on some level have systems in place already within the province that that demonstrate that the solutions to a lot of our problems is not giving people more money to stay home it's it's a balance and trying to find that balance. So, you know, yesterday suddenly, sorry, Sunday suddenly, um, we found out uh, that uh, place my wife will drive from our trailer to and get an ice cream, any drive-in in, in Cupid's or Briggs, depending how you identify it, closed suddenly. And as a regular customer, I would often talk to the owner there and, and he, you know, he had reduced his hours. There was a time when E&E would be open until midnight 
seven days a week and there'd be lineups, uh, people getting ice cream and their, their hot food to the point where sometimes people would actually get food, food like freeze, freeze wrapped or shrink wrapped and sent on airplanes to uh, people or other different liners in other parts of the country. And when I'd be there speaking to him, he would, you know, he was reducing his hours and I was trying to figure out why he stopped, he was stopped being open on Monday. He was open 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, every day. And, and it just didn't make any sense to me. So he just couldn't get people to work. And, and I just didn't, you know, I just couldn't wrap my head around how such a successful business, which was very successful, all of a sudden, suddenly closed yesterday with no notice at all. You know, he just basically just shut down on Sunday, sorry, on Sunday. So, yeah, because it was just uh, early in May there was a news story that the boys, as uh, Tony and Ernie Green, I think their names are, uh, that they weren't shutting down. The rumors were untrue, and they were going to keep going, and then lo and behold, out of out of uh, nowhere, bang, doors closed. Yeah, it's, it's got me you know, really thinking, and you know, there's been a lot of commentary on social media, and, and one person commented that our social safety net is too soft, and... And, and I don't really know, but I, I just I reflect upon examples like that. And of course, an individual employer, who knows what's behind the scenes. But you know, when when you when you kind of look at where we're going as a province, the removal of public exams, the fact that for the last couple of weeks, high school students weren't even in school, you know, didn't have to go to school. The teachers were trying to, administrators were trying to have sports days and stuff to trying to get kids because their marks had already been passed in, and. You know, what is that doing to the future of the province? Um, the so same young people, we have the lowest rate of youth employment right now in the province that has ever been. And why aren't they all working if there's all these jobs, which we know there is, people crying for employees. Yeah, so what's the relationship with the uh, no public exams and what have you and the social safety net and not taking these jobs? I'm sorry, I'm not following that one. Well, I just feel like our culture, instead of embracing productivity and challenging ourselves, and trying to, you know, be efficient and try and create a, a, a better, more productive uh, population. It seems like everybody's okay with with not necessarily putting. Everybody's really, really worried about the kids. I guess mental health, the children, mental health. However, you know, you know that's our future. I mean, the the people in other countries, uh, in particular the countries that we're all competing with on a global scale. I mean, I'm sure that they are not totally completely taking the pressure off and trying to relax the the process so you know where are we going because because our children are our future i mean that's my point there canada's long had a productivity problem i think if we're being honest um and i think that's well understood well documented but i, I i'm still struggling to make the the association between no publics and unable to find workers i went to a restaurant last week for lunch and i noted very quickly as i sat down Man, the average age of the employees had to be 21. They were so young. Every single person in there seemed to be a very young uh, person who had, was willing to take those jobs. It's not an industry for everyone. It's not one for the faint of heart. It's a tough old, dra- a tough old haul to try to work in the food service industry. So the questions, depending on who you are, will be, well, are we paying enough t- for people and are we treating them the way they need to be treated to keep them as employees? The, you're a business owner. You know full well. Some of the big costs associated with running a business is training and retraining and workers' comp. So if we have a, a work environment that people say it's simply not worth my while to work in that setting for that money, you know, where does the balance lie? Does the responsibility lie with the product, the productivity, or the 
the determination of a young worker or with the business? I mean, as someone who's experiencing it, I'm able to attract talented employees and I'm training and training them and emphasizing safety and all the things you need to do. For me, I just look around and I see, I see examples of new people who go to work in large businesses or the government and they're very quickly told to, you know, to tone it down. You're making us look bad. You know, don't work so hard. And I know firsthand examples. I was speaking to an immigrant who left his job in, uh, in agricultural sector because um, he was not comfortable with the work ethic of the Newfoundlanders he was working with. They just, you know, just the, the way they were conducting themselves. And, and, you know, you have the situation in Bonavista where the plant workers are upset because they're no longer getting overtime and they want to be laid off because it's going to impact their, their EI benefits for the winter. Um, you know, we've got tour, a tourism sector employee who last year, they you know, speaking to someone who they went into a community and they honked the horns at them. Everybody was, you know, really, really happy to see them. And when they're in the local restaurant with their guests sitting down, the employee was so thankful they were there, but, he, but couldn't wait till September 1st so they could get laid off. You know, you've got income assistant recipients who, who, who have the ability to go out and be productive, to fill those roles that we're looking at. And, you know, we've got early retirement of uh, government employees at 55 or 58 when, you know, they're living to be 78. And, and all this stuff, um, you know, I've, I deal with, I've dealt with employees in the past, uh, young employees in particular, who regardless of the compensation, they're not reliable. They're calling sick on Saturday morning. And, and everybody deals with this over the years. But we just need to realize where, where we're going. With it. Like, you know, like, like now birthday is the day to take off, right? You take your birthday off. If they're having a problem with their relationships, well, then they're not, they're either distracted or they're not coming to work. They just don't feel like working. And, and, you know, you got union run mega projects that are rife with extreme inefficiencies. I mean, you know, you talk to anybody in the industry, they'll tell you how, you know, you want to, you want to take a, uh, a boom truck on a, on a union job. It takes three or four different unions to be able to unload that boom truck. Whereas, you know, a, a boom truck company could go into a yard, pick something up, go drop it off. One, one person driving the truck does it all. And all that stuff is, and we're okay with it. it. You know, each one of these things by themselves um, could be isolated incidents. But within the province, you know, you have people on long-term disability who could be working. But it's okay that, that all these examples I'm giving, it's okay. It, in actual fact, it's encouraged. It's almost like it's become culturally acceptable to be less productive, to take advantage of government supports. And, and it's, a, it's a huge problem. It, and it's rotting out our society. It's rotting out the work ethic. And it's... And, and we need to look at it and, and, and tackle it and see for what it is. And, and, and that's not, it's not a blame game. It's, it's you know, we've, we've all gotten where we are. A lot of times it's, it's politicians buying our votes with our own money. You know, the fact that a captain of a fishing vessel can make a fortune and still go on EI for the rest of the year. I mean, how does that even make sense to anybody? I, 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 just, I, I just look at, you know, example after example after example. And, and, and I'm sure people listening can list, list off other lots of examples. That being said, there's lots of hardworking employees, both in the private and public sector, who do their best every day and they show up. And, and you know, it's, but as a culture, we need to, to address it. We need to be hardworking. We need to be efficient. We need to challenge ourselves. And, and that's what will cause the province to rise to greater heights. Um, but right now, I fear that, that there's more anchors dropped over the side of the boat and more people sticking holes in the side of the boat than there are people rowing and people plugging it. Some of the very quick turnover in, we'll call them entry-level jobs, is because they know they can just go get a different one at a different spot, ASAP, like whenever they feel like going back out there. You know, people tell me there's no jobs. There might not be the job you want at the rate of pay you want with the benefits you want, but there are absolutely jobs out there to be had. 
which I, I probably shouldn't bring in uh, immigration to it, but some of these things where people get all up in arms is that, you know, how are we going to uh, help these families and support these families, whether it be Ukrainians or otherwise? Well, by and large, they've hit the ground running, you know? They are absolutely uh, digging in immediately and taking these gigs. And many times, some of these jobs that locals won't take, it's, I think it's a fair question to be asked. Now, when it comes to the social safety net and the assessment of who's on it and why they're on it, uh, I think that's a, a fair question to be asked. And that's not about pointing blame or fingers up lazy and ne'er-do-wells. It's not that at all because we do know that some people with the right type of encouragement and training and support can indeed be in the workforce. And also, when you have an entry-level job, it's exactly that. It's an entry-level job. You can work your way up the ranks like many people have done over the years. It's available. might not be something you want, but that doesn't mean it should be something you get to avoid because simply because you don't want it. You know, there's, there's something to be said for the productivity issue that you're trying to uh, articulate here this morning. I'll give you the last word, Tom, before we go. Thank you, Patty, and I totally agree with you. Being a good employee, I see them, and I've got young people now who are managing parts of my business. You know, they're 21 years old and they're university students. Everybody just get out of bed every day and, and lean in. However you define leaning in, just doing the best job you can, and it'll make a difference in the big picture. Everyone stay safe. Take care. Appreciate the time, Tom. All the best. Bye-bye. You know, I guarantee you there will be some very negative reaction to what Tom had to say, but there is a debate and a conversation to be had about you know, I think it includes the education system, to be honest with you. And modern-day educators, they tell me I'm completely in the wrong by saying, you know, we've done away with some of the concerns associated with hitting timelines because absolutely there will be timelines associated with your adult and working life. There just is. They're unavoidable. So whether it be passing your assignment when you want and doing away with what was traditional assessments regarding exams, what have you, I don't know what the best way to do it is, but a little bit more structure that will lead to your own personal well-being, your own productivity, your own opportunities in this world, they're enhanced when you've got it planted in your head early about what it, what it takes and the way to overcome the obstacles, the way to shine uh, above maybe some other applicants. There is something to that. And how it works, I'm not 100% sure. But even if we talk about the amount of money in the hands of folks who are uh, receiving social assistance, that's where all of a sudden, if we try to extend that conversation to the social determinants of health and the concept of guaranteed basic income, they can be peppered with incentives to not be on those programs. And yes, understanding who is getting what type of support from one government program or another is important. It doesn't mean that we're just calling people lazy and drains on society. It's not that. It's trying to ensure that, you know, if we address it pro uh, properly and appropriately, then we're probably all going to be better off, including folks who would now be offered some training to go get one particular job or another and to work their way up the ranks to increase the rate of pay and their hierarchy in one company or another. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, yesterday, I had Sister Elizabeth and Dr. Parfrey on, and um, Health Corps, great, great initiative. Um, and I know one of the big things are hanging the success of trying to move the province forward is, is on guaranteed basic income or some form of guaranteed income for people. And when I was engaged in the process, uh, you know, I, I just kept 
reminding everyone that we, we on some level have systems in place already within the province that, that demonstrate that the solutions to a lot of our problems is not giving people more money to stay home. It's, it's a balance and trying to find that balance. So, you know, yesterday, suddenly, sorry, Sunday, suddenly, um, we found out, uh, that, uh, place my wheel drive from our trailer to and get an ice cream, any drive-in in, in Cupid's or Brigus, depending on how you identify it, close suddenly. And as a regular customer, I would often talk to the owner there and, and he, you know, he had reduced his hours. There was a time when E&E would be open until midnight, seven days a week, and there'd be lineups, uh, people getting their ice cream and their, their hot food to the point where sometimes people would actually get food, food like freeze, freeze wrapped or shrink wrapped and sent on airplanes to uh, people or other infoliners in other parts of the country. And when I'd be there speaking to him, he would, you know, he was reducing his hours, and I was trying to figure out why. He stopped, he was stopped being open on Monday. He was open 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, every day, and, and it just didn't make any sense to me. So he just couldn't get people to work. And, and I just didn't, you know, I just couldn't wrap my head around how such a successful business, which was very successful, all of a sudden, suddenly closed yesterday with no notice at all. You know, he just basically just shut down on Sunday, sorry, on Sunday. So, yeah, because it was just uh, early in May there was a news story that the boys, as uh, Tony and Ernie Green, I think their names are, uh, that they weren't shutting down. The rumors were untrue, and they were going to keep going, and then lo and behold, out of out of uh, nowhere, bang, doors closed. Yeah, it's, it's got me you know, really thinking, and you know, there's been a lot of commentary on social media, and, and one person commented that our social safety net is too soft. And... And, and I don't really know, but I, I just I reflect upon examples like that. And of course, an individual employer, who knows what's behind the scenes. But you know, when when you when you kind of look at where we're going as a province, the removal of public exams, the fact that for the last couple of weeks, high school students weren't even in school, you know, didn't have to go to school. The teachers were trying to, administrators were trying to have sports days and stuff to trying to get kids because their marks had already been passed in, and. You know, what is that doing to the future of the province? Um, the so same young people, we have the lowest rate of youth employment right now in the province that has ever been. And why aren't they all working if there's all these jobs, which we know there is, people crying for employees. Yeah, so what's the relationship with the uh, no public exams and what have you and the social safety net and not taking these jobs? I'm sorry, I'm not following that one. Well, I just feel like our culture, instead of embracing productivity and challenging ourselves, and trying to, you know, be efficient and try and create a, a, a better, more productive uh, population. It seems like everybody's okay with with not necessarily putting. Everybody's really, really worried about the kids. I guess mental health, the children, mental health. However, you know, you know, that's our future. I mean, the the people in other countries, uh, in particular the countries that we're all competing with on a global scale. I mean, I'm sure that they are not totally completely taking the pressure off and trying to relax the the process so you know where are we going because because our children are our future i mean that's my point there canada's long had a productivity problem i think if we're being honest um and i think that's well understood well documented but i, I i'm still struggling to make the the association between no publics and unable to find workers i went to a restaurant last week for lunch and i noted very quickly as i sat down Man, the average age of the employees had to be 21. 
they were so young. Every single person in there seemed to be a very young uh, person who had was willing to take those jobs. It's not an industry for everyone. It's not one for the faint of heart. It's a tough old dra- a tough old haul trying to work in the food service industry. So the questions, depending on who you are, will be, well, are we paying enough t- for people and are we treating them the way they need to be treated to keep them as employees? The, you're a business owner. You know full well. The, some of the big costs associated with running a business is training and retraining and workers' comp. So if we have a, a work environment that people say, it's simply not worth my while to work in that setting for that money, you know, where does the ballast lie? Does the responsibility lie with the, product, the productivity or the the determination of a young worker or with the business? I mean, as someone who's experiencing it, I'm able to attract talented employees and I'm training and training them and emphasizing safety and all the things you need to do. For me, I just look around and I see I see examples of new people who go to work in large businesses or the government and they're very quickly told to, you know, to tone it down. You're making us look bad. You know, don't work so hard. And I know firsthand examples. I was speaking to an immigrant who left his job in uh, in agricultural sector because um, he was not comfortable with the work ethic of the Newfoundlanders he was working with. They just you know, just the, the way they were conducting themselves. And, and, you know, you have the situation in Bonavista where the plant workers are upset because they're no longer getting overtime and they want to be laid off because it's going to impact their, their EI benefits for the winter. Um, you know, you've got tour, a tourism sector employee who last year, they you know, speaking to someone who they went into a community and they honked the horns at them. Everybody was, you know, really, really happy to see them. And when they're in the local restaurant with their guests sitting down, the employee was so thankful they were there, but he, but couldn't wait till September 1st so they could get laid off. You know, you've got income assistant recipients who 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 have the ability to go out and be productive to fill those roles that we're looking at. And you know, we've got early retirement of uh, government employees at 55 or 58 when you know they're living to be 78, and and all this stuff. Um, you know, I've I deal with, I've dealt with employees in the past, uh, young employees in particular who. Regardless of the compensation, they're not reliable. They're calling sick on Saturday morning, and, and everybody deals with this over the years. But we just need to realize where, where we're going. Like, you know, like, like now, birthday is the day to take off, right? You take your birthday off. If they're having a problem with their relationships, well, then they're, not, they're either distracted or they're not coming to work. They just don't feel like working. And, and you know, you got union-run mega projects that are rife with extreme inefficiencies. I mean, you know, you talk to anybody in the industry, they'll tell you how, you know, you want to you wanna take a uh, – a boom truck on a on a union job it takes three or four different unions to be able to unload that boom truck whereas you know a, a boom truck company could go into a yard pick something up go drop it off one one person driving the truck does it all and all that stuff is and we're okay with it it you know each one of these things by themselves um could be isolated incidents but within the province you know you got people on long-term disability who could be working but it's okay that that all these examples i'm giving it's okay it, in actual fact it's encouraged it's almost like it's become culturally acceptable to be less productive, to take advantage of government supports, and and it's a it's a huge problem. It, and it's rotting out our society. It's rotting out the work ethic, and it's and and we need to look at it and 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 tackle it and see for what it is. And and, and that's not it's not a blame game. It's it's you know we've we've all gotten where we are. A lot of times it's it's politicians buying our votes with our own money. You know the fact that a captain of a fishing vessel can make a fortune and still go on EI for the rest of the year. I mean, how does that even make sense to anybody? I, I, I just, I, I just look at, you know, example after example after example. And, and, and I'm sure people listening can listen, list off other lots of examples. 
that being said, there's lots of hardworking employees, both in the private and public sector, who do their best every day and they show up. And and you know, it's, but as a culture, we need to to address it. We need to be hardworking. We need to be efficient. We need to challenge ourselves. And and that's what will cause the province to rise to greater heights. Uh, but right now, I fear that that there's more anchors dropped over the side of the boat and more people sticking holes in the side of the boat than there are people rowing and people plugging. Some of the very quick turnover in, we'll call them entry-level jobs, is because they know they can just go get a different one at a different spot, ASAP, like whenever they feel like going back out there. You know, people tell me there's no jobs. It might not be the job you want at the rate of pay you want with the benefits you want, but there are absolutely jobs out there to be had, which I probably shouldn't bring in uh, immigration to it, but some of these things where people get all up in arms is that, you know, how are we going to... Uh, help these families and support these families, whether it be Ukrainians or otherwise, well, by and large, they've hit the ground running. You know, they are absolutely uh, digging in immediately and taking these gigs. And many times, some of these jobs that locals won't take, it's, I think it's a fair question to be asked. Now, when it comes to the social safety net and the assessment of who's on it and why they're on it, uh, I think that's a fair question to be asked, and that's not about pointing blame or fingers up lazy and ne'er-do-wells. That's not that at all, because we do know that some people with the right type of encouragement and training and support can indeed be in the workforce. And also, when you have an entry-level job, it's exactly that. It's an entry-level job. You can work your way up the ranks like many people have done over the years. It's available. might not be something you want, but that doesn't mean it should be something you get to avoid because simply because you don't want it. You know, there's... There's something to be said for the productivity issue that you're trying to uh, articulate here this morning. I'll give you the last word, Tom, before we go. Thank you, Patty, and I totally agree with you. Being a good employee, I see them, and I've got young people now who are managing parts of my business. You know, they're 21 years old and they're university students. Everybody just get out of bed every day and, and lean in. However you define leaning in, just doing the best job you can, and it'll make a difference in the big picture. Everyone stay safe. Take care. Appreciate the time, Tom. All the best. Bye-bye. You know, I guarantee you there will be some very negative reaction to what Tom had to say. But there is a debate and a conversation to be had about, you know, I think it includes the education system, to be honest with you. And modern-day educators, they tell me I'm completely in the wrong by saying, you know, we've done away with some of the concerns associated with hitting timelines. Because absolutely there will be timelines associated with your adult and working life. There just is. They're unavoidable. So whether it be passing your assignment when you want and doing away with what was traditional assessments regarding exams, what have you, I don't know what the best way to do it is, but a little bit more structure that will lead to your own personal well-being, your own productivity, your own opportunities in this world, they're enhanced when you've got it planted in your head early about what it, what it takes and the way to overcome the obstacles, the way to shine uh, above maybe some other applicants there is something to that and how it works I'm not 100% sure but even if we talk about the amount of money in the hands of folks who are uh, receiving social assistance that's where all of a sudden if we try to extend that conversation to the social determinants of health and the concept of guaranteed basic income they can be peppered with incentives to not be on those programs and yes understanding who is getting what type of support from one government program or another is important It doesn't mean that we're just calling people lazy and drains on society. It's not that. It's trying to ensure that, you know, if we address it properly and appropriately, 
then we're probably all going to be better off, including folks who would now be offered some training to go get one particular job or another and to work their way up the ranks to increase the rate of pay and their hierarchy in one company or another. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six. Cyril, you're on the air. Hi. Good day. Good day to you. Jeez, I thought you were going to keep me waiting forever. I must have been waiting here for 10 minutes. Would you like to continue? Yes, I would, sir. Go ahead. I've got an issue with the income support. i got a real issue. Like, you know, uh, i got a rent increase in August from the landlord. It's been five years since he's had an increase. I was paying six seventy-five. I was going to seven fifty. But the issue is the seventy-five dollar increase that he's received. Uh, my income is going from one seventy-five down to one thirty-five, and like I, I, I just don't know how I'm going to survive on one hundred thirty-five dollars uh, biweekly. Like uh, I had to cut out the cable, and pretty soon I'm going to lose the phone. I mean, I had a hard time buying groceries on one hundred thirty-five dollars biweekly. Cyril, not to be uh, cold, how and why do you find yourself on income support? What's your life circumstance? I'm like 64. I just got out of the hospital. I had a, had a liver operation. And uh, I've been working all across Canada, Alberta and Ontario. I've been in the uh, factories and working in the bush in Alberta since I was like 20, 15 years old. I went to Toronto in 1977. And oh. I was 17 years old. I worked for three bucks an hour. And then it went to like five, six bucks an hour. I think in the 1990s, I think it went up to 10 bucks an hour. I mean, minimum wage is barely enough to pay rent and pay bus fare and uh, buy a sandwich. I mean, the living conditions are not what they say in this country. For a poor person trying to work in a factory or uh, a minimum wage job, it, 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 it's okay if you got relatives, you can live with rent free. But if you got to pay rent and try to support yourself on minimum wage, it's just about there impossible. No doubt about it. I mean, even on the path to wherever minimum wage is going to land, you know, the rally for $15 an hour, that official campaign started in 2009. The inflationary pressures have been in the neighborhood of 40% since then, so nothing's keeping up with the cost of living. If you're on minimum wage, living on your own or a single parent, I don't know how anybody makes ends meets in that uh, circumstance, to be honest with you. So, yeah, I get it. I think we. I think it's just time to have a closer look at all of the boutique tax credits and social assistance programs that are out there provincially and on the national scale. And I think if we did the math on it and figured out a way to, you know, there's a bunch of things for me. Uh, if I had my druthers, you wouldn't be allowed to quit school at 16 without going right into some sort of training program that can get you a meaningful, gainful job. You wouldn't get out of prison unless you got your GED. Some of these things where we can put some education in place to give people a fighting chance. Secondly, with the entry-level job that pays you minimum wage, there are opportunities to stick with it, and all of a sudden, before you know it, after a few years of hard work, you can move up the chain, you get paid more. I know it to be true because one of my sons has done exactly that while he was going through university. So there's just a broken system out there. We know on top of that, that even during the pandemic, the planet, uh, we had one additional billionaire every single day. The gap between the haves and the have-nots has never been wider. So there is a broken system that needs to be attended to. But uh, I think that's a little bit beyond what you were trying to say. Go ahead. It's, uh, it's never going to be an ideal world. 
I mean, uh, it's it, it's not a few poor people on social assistance that have uh, mental issues or they're mentally challenged or they don't have the resources for even a computer. I mean, you can't even apply for a job in a society without computer access. And then you need transportation and you need housing. And, like, uh, you know, it's, it's like in Ukraine. Who, who knows when the world's going to go bottom up and there's another war. I mean, it's like all the war in New York, in, uh, in Germany, which caused all the uh, influx into America, which created all the jobs, all the industry. Okay. Um, I think I get that point. Uh, anything else you'd like yeah, to add, Sarah, probably. while you're on the air? Well, like, you know, there must be something out there. Like, I mean, uh, there, there's lots of other people on the income support. I don't hear them screaming and yelling like they're paying $700 for rent. And they're, they're, I don't know. I think they, they they must be receiving more than $135 or, or else to be public outcry. Why, 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 why am I the only person with a $135 issue? Are you, though? I don't think so. Well, I don't hear nobody complaining, so which leads me to think that I'm a select individual. Well, I, I can tell you from experience sitting in this chair, we've heard an awful lot of these uh, types of conversations over the years, plenty, tons. And you know, you mentioned like access to a computer and understanding the digital age and what have you. I'll bring that back to my thoughts about the education system and training programs so, so that people can move into jobs that can give them a fighting chance here. Because... Well, that's all the issue. Like you know, like if, if, if people don't have the mental capacity, I mean, you 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 can't a, uh, force a person to learn to be an astronaut. I mean, if they can't make it to grade grade school, it's a pretty well a bet that they're going to end up on social assistance in public housing. I mean, it starts it starts in the school in the low grades. I mean, if the person don't have the capacity, you 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 can't force them to do it. But uh, there's only a small, uh, small portion of the population on income support. It's like the prison system, you know. Once you get a criminal record, you can't even get a volunteer position, let alone a job, because the first thing they want is a clean record. That's true. Yeah, it's very true. I know. I, I've got to go to the system. I live with it all my life. I'm 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 64 this year. You 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 think there'd be some kind of uh, assistance for seniors? I got another year. I'll be 65. I mean, it's unbelievable. I'm going to get they're 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 they're, they're going to reduce my income to 135 dollars. It's a, it's a, hardly enough to buy groceries. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some of the ministers out there listening today, and uh, some, something ought to be addressed because there, 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 there should be a basic living allowance so, so people can support themselves. You had to go to food banks and go running around picking up recycles just, 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 just to get a couple of bucks. I understand. Yeah, well, that's the issue. I just want to relay that out today. I hope, hope some of the ministers are out there listening because I, I, I think there should be a, 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 a basic uh, li, 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 living allowance. It's one of the recommendations inside the health accord, so they're treating it as a matter of health uh, in addition to a matter of being able to pay your bills and what have you. Sarah, I wish you well in your recovery from surgery, and I thank you for your time. Well, listen, sir, it, it, it certainly is a matter of health because if you can't feed yourself, you, you will certainly have health uh, issues. 
No doubt. And that, I think that quite clearly when they talk about the social determinants of health, they talk about a variety of things. Who you are, where you are, level of education, man or a woman, uh, level, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, and what that means for your interaction with the healthcare system, which is the most expensive thing in this country by a wide margin. Uh, thanks for your time, Cyril. Take good care of yourself. Have a good day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Oops. Uh, let's go to line number two. Sean, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on this morning. Uh, wanted to talk about a couple of things, <clears throat> and I'm just going to preface it by these things aren't things that uh, are new that I'm going to present, but I want to see if I can present them in a, a different way. And, and these come from talking to people about issues, people who are in the system, people who have personal involvement in various things. And I'm going to throw out some things this morning. And two things I want to throw out, I'm going to put them out in the form of a hypothesis. And hypotheses are things that somebody throws out. I work, work in the scientific community. So what somebody does is after they do a whole lot of study and look at the evidence, they put out a hypothesis. Now, the thing about hypotheses in the scientific area is to disprove it, not to prove it, because in disproving stuff, you can find out if it's correct or false. And I'm going to throw out my first hypothesis to you, and people have talked about it already. It's been on the news. I, I would like to put out the hypothesis that the city's crime level is out of control and our police and justice systems are not able to deal with it. I mean, every day, including this morning, we hear Halliday's was held up, big scuffle. I know people who have been knifed uh, in their stores and other things. I've also been talking to people intimate in the justice system down in the court areas, and I was told, and, and learned people believe this, is we are only being told a small pittance of what goes on in the crime in this city. What do you mean? How, what does that mean? It means that what we're seeing in the press is really not the total picture of the underbelly of what's really happening in the city with regards to crime. Well, the court dockets are public record. So right. if anyone what cares... Actually gets, what actually gets to the news is what I'm talking about, right? But, but nonetheless, I mean, what we're seeing in the city and throughout this province with people breaking into this place, home invasions, uh, excavators, uh, tearing down the fronts of stores and that, I mean, this is just getting out of hand. And, and I've got personal experience with this, and I'll share one. Um, and one of the things with this is, and somebody talked about it about three callers back, the person was very articulate, and, and it was interesting to listen to. But the issue of people being released for people being released after they perform a crime. I had a personal uh, uh, thing happen to me. Really nice young fella occupying one of my rentals. Uh, business owner in town, friend of the family, nice individual. Turns out he gets targeted by a guy who is going out with a girl he knew. This guy thinking that he's dating her, which wasn't the case. This uh, young man, fine young man, uh, knew this girl for many years. Winds up beating the windows out of one of my places, beating the windows out of the car that one of the other residents had. This guy has got a, a docket the length of your arm. They arrest him the next day. Now, this, this guy has had to leave my place, my tenant, because of fear for his life. He goes and hides, and then they finally catch this guy. And then he's out the next day, back out on the street with his hammer or whatever he's going to do to to, to uh, attack this guy, right? And I mean, I just think what's going on in here in the city, and somebody, like I said, in, a, in my hypothesis, what I started out with, proved to me it ain't so. 
because all the indicators that we have in this city, in my opinion, this, this is starting to get off the rails here. And when people started to do home invasions and other things, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, Patty, and a lot of us are talking about it. Do we have to start to arm up? Because, you know, when, when is the day that you're going to be sitting home and somebody's going to break into your house? And, Patty, the other thing is, you know, we're, we're getting shootings now, random shootings. And the police even used the word it was targeted, a targeted shooting. So I'm sitting in my home, and the guy's house next door gets shot up, and, oh, it was targeted, Patty. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry to your spouse and your wife. Let's all go out and have a barbecue again. That was targeted. That had nothing to do with us. I mean, it's a shooting in this city. And the, the amount of this that's going on uh, is just insanity. Well, I mean, there was an example of the apartment building getting shot up not too far from this uh, building here on Thorburn Road. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I mentioned off the, the top of the show. Was released. <clears throat> it is getting more and more severe, well, no, no, seemingly sorry, They weren't released. They were still in their apartment. Yeah, and the, and the links have been, you know, when the police say something like targeted, it sometimes comes across maybe not the uh, the pointed word required because shooting up an apartment building is not necessarily targeted. Apparently the guy that stabbed the guy on George Street lived in that apartment building, but those, so do dozens of other people. So, right. you know, pretty loose targeted? target. Who cares if it's targeted? It's somebody using a gun, you know? And bullets go through houses. They don't just stop at the front door. I mean, these things, you know, if you're using a handgun, rifle, shotgun, whatever it is, these things can penetrate through houses, you know, through other houses and all this sort of stuff. And we're, we're being led to believe that this type of heinous crime uh, is just, you know, it's kind of like, you know, kind of ordinary, right? We can deal with it. But anyway, I'm just going to end that particular point on that. Well, let me just, but let me pick up on the targeted piece. I think the rationale behind that is, is that we don't have a case of a simple sociopath shooting at whoever they feel, random person walking down the street. I guess that's the difference between random violence and targeted violence, even though that's cold comfort for people living in that apartment building that was shot up that night. So fair enough. If you want to leave that one there. But, but, and Patty, I will also debate based on the handling process that, you know, the police do have some, I suppose, social responsibility for. We don't want to have the whole social network go crazy based on, what the reality of what's happening is. So, you know, maybe that's supposed to be some cold comfort to people that live next door and the fact that they, I don't know, make them feel happy. It doesn't make me feel happy. It doesn't make any of my people that are around the dinner table last night feel happy. I mean, it's a, it's, it's shootings. And we, and I'll repeat it, a, a number of people have really said, should I be buying a shotgun? Should I be, you know, carrying, having a stick next to my bed? Like, when can this happen to me? And I think there's little comfort and I'm putting it out there again, I think there's something seriously wrong with how this is being handled. And I will segue into my next hypothesis, and that is the drug and opioid situation in this province is out of control as well. And I think a lot of the crime that we have is from two facets of the drug problem. One is the fact that there's just a whole lot of people out there who unfortunately uh, are have become victims or they have got into drug situations and it's a lot of the crime uh you know the holidays crime breaking into banks breaking into various places where there's money is just simply because people have to get their fix and the other part of it is is i really wonder if uh there is big big money in the province where you know drugs are being sold and the amount of money 
that's in the drug racket here in Newfoundland is so scary, it scares the hell out of the justice system. I have had many stories, Patty, where houses have been broken into, people beaten near to death because they owed money to various drug people. And this is a well-known fact. And I really wonder how much um, money is being out there. Uh, had a meeting or a discussion with somebody the other day, again, in the legal system, and they suggested to me, like, we just a little while ago, we had $1.2 million. Uh, somebody found, I think it was cocaine, in a trunk somewhere. And I was told, that's patent advice. That's somebody who is moving a load of drugs, giving that person up, and then they pay big bucks to deal with that. And I'm, I'm not totally aware of it, but I was totally led to believe by learned people that $1.2 million in cocaine is nothing with regards to the amount of drugs that are being trafficked in this town. Can I just, of, just so I understand what you're saying, you're saying that the police are paying enormous sums of money for informants to out their rival drug dealers? Is that what you said? No, 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 not at all. What I'm saying is, is what we are being presented uh, with the drug situation, like a $1.2 million bust, is nothing. And what happens after that, I've been told by people in the know, that person was what they call a mule. And then that person gets out because a lot of money is given to the appropriate lawyer or somebody to defend them. And they're out the next day, that $1.2 million person. He was out the next day, Patty. He was out the next day. I mean, I don't know how much cocaine in the big scheme of things is represented by a $1.2 million bust. No. Uh, but I no. do know that there is... No argument that the war on drugs has been a complete and utter futile waste of money. Completely. Yeah. No matter how you slice it, whether it be from the Reagan era right up until today, the trillions of dollars that have been spent has done nothing. If you bust a dealer, one comes behind them. If you bust a, if you could uh, seize $1.2 million of cocaine, there's another $1.2 million of cocaine in the next trunk behind. So it is rampant. It is everywhere. So... And the okay. criminal element, pardon? So, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. And the criminal element involvement in the drug trade is also well understood. Yeah. Everywhere in this world where they've tried to deal with it head on, as whether it be a health matter versus criminal justice, and or a safe supply, and or decriminalizing illicit drugs, it's worked. No one wants to talk about it in this country. But we're all happy enough apparently with the status quo. Gangs and crime and guns and firebombings and overdoses and deaths and in the hospital and in the clink. And that's if that's good enough for people, well, what can I say? But if you want HIV to be down, hepatitis to be down, less people going through the turnstiles of the courts regarding their criminal involvement with drugs, that goes down. So we either start talking about it and harm reduction policies and what works elsewhere and what doesn't. But right now, we're spinning our wheels. They yeah. create a task force between the RNC and the RCMP to navigate organized crime and drugs on the West Coast. Is it going to take any drugs out of the system? Yeah, None. but as soon as the drugs come out, it's backfilled ASAP. Yeah, and, and, and you're absolutely right. Patty, I, I travel the province quite a bit in the job that I have, and I went into I was into a community the other day. It was up on the Bonavista Peninsula. I had a talk with an individual who was in the you know key member of the community. He says there's people up there walking into people's homes with cash. 130000 bucks in cash and saying, I'll buy your home right now. And this is going on all over the place. Whole communities, parts of communities being bought up, right, by cash. But anyway, I'm going to leave that at that. But I just presented to the public that my hypothesis is that 
this drug problem is way out of control. If you get under, the, if you lift the hood at all, the, the little stuff that's being reported, $1 million, $1.5, it's, it's nothing compared to the overall problem we have. And well, I will, f- go ahead. There's no argument that the drug issue is out of control right across the country. It simply is, whether it be the level of crime associated with it, whether it be the numbers of people addicted and the numbers of people dying. It's just clear. So unless yeah. people want to be honest with each other, but think about it. The country wasn't ready to uh, legalize cannabis. And it turns out that hasn't brought upon the impact people thought it would. There's no spike in usage. In fact, the segment of society that has seen an increase in consumption of cannabis has been seniors. There has been no spike in driving under the influence. The exact opposite has happened here. So, you know, let's just learn from what actually works as opposed to digging in our heels with some political ideology or yearning for days gone by. The problems have always been there. Now they manifest themselves with a handgun. Right, so yep. that's different from exactly. when I grew up in this city. I can tell you that. So things have Absolutely. changed. It'd be interesting to see the crime numbers, petty crimes all the way to physical crimes, all the way to gun-related matters, armed robberies and otherwise. Yeah, I mean, the stories are endless, so I don't think there's any denying what you're saying here this morning, Sean. Uh, last well, word to you before I have to go. Yeah, the one last thing I'd like to say, and it's too big to fulfill, but I, I had been on before talking about it. And my last hypothesis is the opioid treatment in this province is a farce. And there really is no plan. I, I have hired somebody now to do a, an in-depth study into this, a very, very competent uh, research assistant. And what I see in the city, and the reason why I say this, Patty, is I am intimately involved with this, unfortunately. Uh, we have all the optics, but precious little uh, actual effective help. If you, here, here's a challenge for somebody. Try to find out what doctor in the city actually wants to prescribe Suboxone. Just try to find one. And secondly, somebody, get somebody on the air here that says, what is the standard of practice for Suboxone or methadone treatment? I'd love to see that because I can't find it. Well, there are two different things. Methadone is not great. Suboxone works. You can actually self-wean yourself off Suboxone. No, you can't, Patty. Well, you you can. You can. Well, you can. Yeah. If you want to go through seizures, if you want to not eat for seven days, if no, you don't no, want to no, eat for seven days, no, buddy, I'm, deal- I'm dealing with somebody right now with this. It's not that easy. Well, the optics of it is, and Patty here, like trying to find a doctor that would prescribe it, first of all, with a standard of practice, and trying to get that doctor to actually be around. We're dealing with one doctor right now, gone offline for four days, got the druggist trying to phone their office, uh, other people trying to phone what happened. And so this person has to go back to the streets again to get their drugs because they can't find the doctor. Yeah, one of the big problems with methadone is there was only a handful of doctors in the entire province that were licensed to prescribe it, as opposed to Suboxone, which is much more widely available if you can convince your doctor to pick up their pen and write you a prescription for. I appreciate the time, Sean. Okay, thanks. As Same as touch. Bye now. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Terra Nova. That's Lloyd Parrott. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How you doing this morning? That's about it, I suppose. How about you? Always good. Always good. Just wanted to call in this morning, Patty, I guess, to talk a little bit about our oil and gas industry and, I guess, uh, the apparent lack of concern from the Liberal government. And I, I'll just go back to, uh, you know, our first thing we saw was the cancellation of our seismic program. And, uh, you know, I, you've seen the Premier and, and certainly the, the Minister at the time dismiss my concerns about that decision. And, you know, here we are. Uh, trying to move things forward, and that's still on hold. And we just seen two top executives leave, which really begs uh, the question.
question what the future is for our seismic program, certainly for the future of the offshore. And then we've seen the land sale bid process deferred. Now I understand that they've reopened it, and hopefully it works out. But you know we should be expediting all of that stuff in order to move things forward, given the current fiscal state we're in. Um, on the seismic program, obviously the intentions of it proved to be quite successful when they began it we saw eight new entrants come in and some record sales for individual parcels and for land sales annually so it did work but the industry says that there's plenty of seismic on hand well i don't know if that's necessarily true i mean uh, there's there's a seismic vessel out there now doing seismic work on their own looking for for further information and i guess we can't have too much information, and, and I guess a lot of it has got to do with the message that we're sending to industry. We had a we had a very robust seismic program. I believe it was more uh, of a, a 3D type of image, and, and there is better options out there today from a technological standpoint that allows us to see what's there better. You know, I guess the big question is, Patty, is what's the plan for the future? And at the end of the day, I mean, under Advanced 2030 and, and the previous minister, uh, they were very bullish on the fact that there was more more than likely 600, uh, equivalent to 600 fines out there the size of Hebron. And now we've just stopped. And, you know, we need to send a clear message to industry that we're open for business. And and it's a short-term thing. Listen, we all know the financial state we're in. We all know that we have to transition to a green economy. The reality of it is, is that oil and gas could be our silver bullet to get us there. Uh, and we need to take advantage of that, and it just doesn't seem like the current government, and certainly the federal government, aren't on board with it. I mean, we all have seen how hard we had to fight. And I'm not just talking about myself. I believe there were many in industry and all, all across the province who, who spoke up in order to get the Baden Orr project moving forward. To me, it really feels like there's been a huge difference in tone and attitude regarding the industry, you say, two years ago compared to today. So now we've got the Beta Nord project has been approved, not yet sanctioned by the company itself. But here comes BP moving their offices here. They obviously are bullish on the province. White West Rose Extension back on the go. Hebron, pardon me, Hibernia going to start drilling again. Terra Nova is going to be back up and, and swinging. So feels like it's a much different landscape than it did even just two years ago. It was nothing but doom and gloom. It was like, uh-oh, the sunset has arrived on the oil and gas industry. It doesn't quite feel like that anymore. No, all great news, Patty, and I agree with you 100%, but the reality of, of the industry is is that if we have the oil out there, the reserves that we think and know we have, you know, we, we need to be taking advantage of that. And certainly, you know, here is a province with the state we're in. We, we really need to be pushing to find a way to not only just pay down our debt, but to employ men and women that work here. And you look at Beta Nord as an example. I mean, under the agreement that was signed in 2018, the talk was 5,000 metric tons to be done here in the province. At that time, I believe it was two or three subsea modules to be uh, built, and now I'm hearing, and I'm sure others in the industry are hearing, that it could be as much as seven or eight times that amount. We're talking, you know, upwards of over 20 modules now going out there if this goes ahead. 5,000 metric tons don't cut it. I mean, every single bit of work that can happen in this province ought to be happening here. And Equinor, I mean... In Equinor's defense, in their own country, they just did a very similar project, and uh, the hull couldn't be built in Norway. The hull came to Norway, and 100% of the work is going to happen in Norway. All the mechanical outfitting, all the subsea modules, everything is going to be done there. And Newfoundland is well positioned to do that work. We, you know, we have the facilities, we have the manpower, and uh, you know, the, the key is we have the knowledge and the ability to do it. And you don't hear a peep from government. You don't hear a thing about getting this work here. And and I agree. You know, what has happened in the last six months 
it's beneficial but this is not new stuff this is all things that were in existence two years ago and they're just finally moving forward they're getting back online what I'm talking about is new exploration, new seismic activity, and new opportunities for Newfoundland and Labrador. I mean, remember back when the Hebron work that was not done here, they paid us a fine. I think it was $110 million or something, which, you know, is pittance, number one. And secondly, work being done here and the jobs created and the tax base expanded is vastly different than money just going directly to the government. 100% Patty and if you look at you know if you look at our current employment situation and, and you think about the money that's being recycled in the province and, and that's what it boils down to it'll never get us out of the hole we're in we need new opportunities and new people working and and oil and gas right now you know and I'm, I'm not just talking about the strictly new oil farms offshore I mean it, natural gas also I mean with grassy point all of this stuff needs to be pushed as hard as we can and you know, when we hear the federal government, and certainly the federal minister, is is very non-supportive. We all heard what he said. The mixed messaging that's coming out, I mean, you listen to what Jim Keating said two weeks ago about oil co and, and you know, these, these new opportunities, and you listen to what the feds are saying versus what the province is saying, they're not on the same page. So it leaves a lot of questions as to where we're going, how we're going to get there. You know, do the provincial and federal government support our offshore and those questions simply haven't been answered. Is there anything standing in the way of uh, an oil and gas company producing the gas that they're sitting on? Because once the field is in production, it's a decision where, whether it's uh, re-injected to force the oil up or it's flared off or what have you. So is there anything actually in the way of the companies producing the gas that they're actually sitting on? Patty, uh, you know, I mean, obviously a transshipment terminal would be huge, right? Uh, and we don't have that ability right now. And when you listen to the discussions ongoing about natural gas and the ability to liquefy it, I mean, you know, our, our colder climate makes it a, a cheaper process here in Newfoundland. We're, we're really prime located to do that, but I believe there has to be incentive, and part of that incentive would be a transshipment terminal. They bring it into shore, liquefy, and then send it off to the rest of the world. And as much as people don't want to talk about it, it is a way to a green transition. There's a high demand for LNG right now. And the reality of it is, is we could be world-class a provider to entire, you know, all, all the continent of Europe, really. And it doesn't appear as if the feds are on board. I mean, and I'm not saying they're not. What I am saying is that we don't hear enough about it to understand whether or not this is moving forward. I know LNGNL are pushing really hard. They've got a great plan. And, and if you sit and listen to the plan, it's it obviously very key for Newfoundland and Labrador. I mean, it puts so many people to work, and it gives us a great opportunity. The only thing I would say that may be a holdup is I don't know that there's a royalty regime around gas versus oil. And, and, you know, I mean, I think maybe that has to happen. But the reality of it is, is the will is there now. There are, there are people in place who want to do this. Yeah, we can do all these things concurrently because there's going to be massive opportunities in critical, min uh, critical minerals. Huge. There's obviously some interest in with the ban on wind going by the wayside. You know, two proposals for hydrogen projects here. And I'll also throw BP back in there. They are big on the green hydrogen. You know, just read a story last week where they're the lead player in a $36 billion green hydrogen project in Western Australia. So while oil does what oil does, and we'll see what the future exploration looks like. And interestingly, there's not one single proposal in front of the impact Assessment Agency of Canada from anywhere in this country yeah. on oil. That is just remarkable how things have changed. And of course, governments will change, environment ministers will change, natural resource ministers will change. So, you know, what Stephen Gibo says today might not be the tone of the federal government 
five years from now, two years from now, 12 months from now. But anyway, I'll give you the last word. Lloyd, go right ahead. Yeah, federal government aside, I mean, federal and provincial government, and you just you just said a mouthful, Patty, when you talked about green hydrogen and wind, and we need all of that, right? I mean, certainly with our mineral exploration and the, and, and the, the exciting components of what's involved with that and the ability to put Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to work, we need electricity to power that, right? And part of that can come from LNG and certainly can come from hydrogen. And, and we need to find ways to do that. And this, you know, at the end of the day, again, I'll go back. We know the cost of green energy. We know the cost of hydroelectricity. You can talk about Muskrat Falls all day long. If you look at projects in British Columbia, Muskrat Falls, they've all gone over. That's the cost of business, unfortunately. The reality is oil and gas is our silver bullet, and it can pay for a green transition. And we need to push that as hard as we can. Appreciate the time this morning, Lloyd. Thank you. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Lloyd Parrott. He's the PC member for Terra Nova. Let's get back on track with a break. Do not go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's try line number five. Keith, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello there. How are you doing today? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, not too bad. I just wanted to uh, call in, touch base uh, about the the uh, canceling of the free rapid test for school aged children here in Newfoundland, okay. in Labrador. Yep. Uh, well, first of all, I mean it's uh, you know it's going to leave out a lot of people who can't afford to pay the twenty dollars or whatever it is per test. Uh, I think that is, you know, that's not that shouldn't be going on. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have COVID and not be able to figure that out and put themselves and others in danger just thinking that they have you know the cold the flu whatever um i'm not sure what that decision was you know really based on because uh you know the claim is that uh because we're so low prevalence here in newfoundland with covid or so they're saying um the test uh you know uh, accuracy has gone down because there's so little covid here that the tests aren't accurate because they they do it as a statistical, you know, probability estimate sort of thing. Um, that's a contradiction to what the government of Canada reported at the end of May, which was that the wastewater COVID markers in St. John's Harbor were as high as they were in February at the end of May. So, um, you know, this is something's just not adding up when it comes to, uh, you know, saying that rapid tests are, are not very useful now and they're giving a lot of false positives. Because we have so little COVID here, uh, you know, despite the fact that the federal government is saying, you know, your wastewater in St. John's is showing as much COVID as it did in February. So I have, a, I have an issue with that for the two reasons, the, the, the economic, the financial reason, where, whereas people who can't afford it won't be able to get uh, a rapid test because it's already difficult to get a PCR test. Uh, they kind of, uh, you know, pushed us towards the rapid test because, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's, they said they didn't have enough testing capacity or if it was too expensive or what. Um, but now that they, you know, they push us towards that only, you know, uh, method of testing and now they're taking that away for the people who can't afford it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's right. And then again, with that contradiction of, you know, we don't have very much COVID here in Newfoundland, yet the federal government is showing that we actually have as much as we had in February. And I don't know how we know the, how much uh, what the prevalence of COVID is, period, with the change of the PCR testing protocol. I admit I find that to be confusing as well. As it pertains to cost, was it always going to be the case, so at the end of the school year, that people, child care services, will continue to get uh, those kits 
that's what I thought it was going to look like. But students and staff yeah. in the K to twelve system, they would be no longer getting the free kits once school was out because the issue was to keep the school safe. But if you're not in school, I assume that was going by the wayside at the end of this week anyway. How about you? Well, see, it's it's just that that you know it's that it's that precedent that it's okay. We don't need it now, and then are they going to bring it back in September? So it's kind of if you don't mention it now. You know, uh, in September when they just, you know, decide, okay, this is our policy, uh, deal with it. It's a lot harder to get that, you know, word out that there is displeasure of about this decision, right? So if we wait until, uh, you know, August or something when they say, yeah, after the summer of having low COVID, even though we have no idea how much COVID there is here, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get them to hear that people are displeased with this decision, right? Because then we'll only have like a couple of weeks to you know, try to hopefully convince them that, you know, people do uh, need these tests because, you know, a lot of people cannot afford, you know, $15, $20 a test. You know, what if you had a family with like three kids, four kids? I mean, you know, there's there's so many people who are out there hurting financially. And then here's another thing where it's just, you know, it's tone deaf and, you know, uh, we're going to take this away. We'll figure it out later based on our already iffy data right like like you said who knows how much covid there is i mean right now uh you know uh you look around there's loads of people sick and this is not normal for a june so you can you can play it up as well it's the flu or the cold or allergies allergies come on there's not this many people typically sick in the month of june if you look back to last june when we had measures in place and we had mitigating strategies we didn't have thousands of people you know, off sick from work. We didn't have a, a major teacher shortage where classes were having to double up. And, you know, uh, the hospitals weren't to the point where they were running out of nurses and things like that. And specialists weren't backed up for, you know, forever. Um, so this whole, everything's fine. There's no COVID here thing. I'm just, you know, it's just hard to really buy into when you, when you visibly see so many people and especially kids. So some classes are like half the class is out sick in June. That's just not normal, right? No, and I do know that some families have a stockpile of rapid test kits. They were being given yeah. out repeatedly. A friend of mine with four children all in the K-12 system, he's got a drawer yeah. in his kitchen that's full from absolutely chock blocked with rapid test kits. So I wonder how they're going to be. And you know, I think the next logical question is, okay, if we're stopping the distribution inside the K-12 system, what about the general population? Do we still have rapid test kits? What's their shelf life? Are we going to dole them out free of charge because we have them on hand? The federal government bought them. So those are yep. a couple of additional thoughts. Last word to you, Keith, before I have to go. Yeah, I mean, I just, I'd like to see more, more data collection. I mean, if you're making these public health decisions and you're saying, okay, we don't need the only form of testing that is available to the, you know, the public, and we don't need as much of it, and we don't need to give it away anymore, then, you know, you're going to have to up the PCR testing, and you're going to have to prove that statement that there isn't as high of a prevalence of COVID in the community, uh, you know, as we had. So if the federal government is saying, listen, you have as much COVID in your wastewater as you did in February, then we cannot say, there's, you know, there's not a lot of COVID around here, it's fine, right? I mean, that's, that is just not, uh, you know, that's not how you do the science, right? Because that's what we're always hearing. Well, we're basing it on the science. Well, if the data is skewed, then the decision is too. So. Appreciate your time this morning, Keith. Thank you.
Thanks. Have a great day, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, what we're talking about, we'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Big thanks to one of the emailers regarding Keith's call and access to free rapid antigen test kits. Apparently out in Bonavista, they're giving out boxes of five for free at the pharmacy. Don't know how that came to pass or whether or not that's a feature in pharmacies in different communities, but if you're in Bonavista, apparently that's an opportunity for you. Uh, a quick note, coming up on Thursday, we've been trying to organize some time with Carl Diamond from the Diamond Group of Companies uh, about the proposal to buy the Stephenville Airport. You know the story. So again, in a council meeting last night in Stephenville, one holdout, again, Councillor uh, uh, Lenny Tiller is his name, and this is about the possibility for the Diamond Group to purchase the fire hall for some $10 million. So... Councillor Tiller is not so sure there's enough protection for the town in place given the current approach of the government, of the municipal government in the town of Stephenville. We hear some people who really seem to be quite optimistic that the proposal to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, create thousands of jobs, have a drone building program in action at the Stephenville Airport, reinstate some passenger travel, it would be just so good. Sometimes people will tell me that if it sounds too good to be true, well, maybe that's the case. Thankfully, we do indeed have Mr. Diamond uh, agreed to join us on the show on Thursday. So no better opportunity to go right to the head of the company that has made this massive proposal. So we'll see the status or hear about the status of the deal when we have a chance to speak with Mr. Diamond once again coming up on Thursday. And I knew it would be the case, and this is generally the way it goes. You know, change is hard and change is manageable if we really lean into it. But the fact that the country is moving towards additional plastic bans, and it still only represents 5% of the plastics consumed and, I guess, tossed out in this country. When you talk about the banning of plastic straws, takeout containers, grocery bags, cutlery, stir sticks, plastic rings that are used to hold the uh, six packs together, there's options available. Apparently, the six, pack, six packs will be held together with uh, saran wrap. You know, even though that's not an ideal solution, but there's no ban on that particular product. And, we, you know, saran wrap's a pretty common household tool. But my thought when I said, you know, if we look around the shops as to how much plastic we unnecessarily have in play, the pushback was, you know, who am I to say that something, something's unnecessary? Well, I think if we're just being logical about some things, if there are two batches of cucumbers available in the grocery store and one is individually wrapped cucumbers, the other ones are just bare cucumbers, I think there's an argument to be made for why do we need to wrap the plastic one? And I made reference to a very specific product, and I don't know why, it just popped in my head, was the big, thick clamshell plastic casing around, like, for instance, a pair of scissors. As opposed to the scissors just on a hook with a price tag on them and not in that plastic vessel. Because remember, it's not just about the plastic that is likely, if we go by the documentation, is likely to end up in a landfill or what have you. What you're also doing is paying for it. So while we can haul more of the plastic out, we can also reduce how much money we have to spend on a pair of scissors or a pair of nail clippers or whatever that comes in a plastic case. They're not giving you the plastic case for free. You're actually paying for it. And if we wonder aloud whether or not it's necessary, I think we can factor that into the conversation. But anyway, let's take a break. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Peg. You're on the air. 
Hi, Penny. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good, boy, considering, you know, as long as your health holds is all of it. But uh, I'm calling from Trapezi, and I wanted to follow up uh, Mayor Rita Pennell. Uh, this isn't just a Trapezi issue. This is an Irish Loop issue. And uh, when when you realise that the doctor that they advertised for is two days here in Trapezi, one day in Fairyland, and two days in Holy Road, supposed to be covering here virtually. So, like... We have a doctor, and there was no. Well, we have we have no doctor right now, but we had a doctor who was interested, who had been here, and when they offered her the terms, she counter offered, I guess, and there was no negotiation. It was just like, no, you're not getting what you want. Uh, you know, if you want it, fine. If you don't want it, that's fine too. And what they have to realize is that. When you're recruiting for for rural Newfoundland, you've got to offer these doctors more than what they're getting in St. John's. I, I suppose. You know, I don't know if that's going to always be the case, but maybe for some it absolutely is. They graduate from med school, they look at their student loan, for instance, and say, well, mm-hmm. I'm going where I can make the most money. And I think that stands to reason for many people. But would that be the case for all? Like, if I'm... If I have a wife or a husband and a couple of kids, yeah. my consideration would also be, what's the opportunities for my partner or my spouse to work in the area? What's the opportunities exactly. and amenities for my children? So I don't know yeah. if it's as simple as we pay more, they will come. You know, like everything else in healthcare, if it was only about money, we'd be in good shape. But unfortunately, we're not. No, exactly. But it's not. It is about the perks per se, and it doesn't have to be money. Like I mean, one of the things that the doctor asked for was to do compressed days, and they were like. No, that's not an option. So, like, if you can see the same number of of patients in the day, does it matter what hours you work? Not necessarily. Uh, the right. re- remark I made to Mayor Pennell on that one is, you know, when there's a relationship with the regional health authorities, and I guess they're all mm-hmm. going to be amalgamated into one, and then there's the yeah. quest for hospital privileges, what have you, if all of a sudden... Every doctor knows that, well, Dr. X out there gets to do this. Well, I'm going to tell the health authority here I'm only willing to do Y. So at some point, there's got to be some structure. And I get flexibility. It totally makes sense to me. You know, if we have to be creative, so to speak, then we should go down that path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, you have to be creative about it. But when, like, there was no negotiation, because one one of the issues is the travel. Like, I mean, you're coming to Trapezi, you're traveling two hours from Holy Road. You're coming to Fairyland, same thing. They're traveling, I don't know, an hour and a half maybe or an hour and 15 minutes to from Holy Road. So, I mean, there has to be some kind of incentive because if not, you're, they're not going to look to come here. Sure, if I, can, if I can have the same amenities and live in St. John's and have a practice in St. John's, why would I go rural? Like, really, it doesn't make sense. Not to me anyway. Like, I mean, yeah, it's fine. I like to live rural, but not everybody does. Well, that's right. I mean, I think there's sort of so many factors here, which makes uh, Dr. Megan Hayes' job extremely complex, I would imagine, as the new yeah. deputy minister responsible for the recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals. Even if you boil it down to, for instance, I graduated from the University of Toronto. I'm looking around the country. Everybody wants me to come work uh, in their province and in their community. And then I look at the fundamentals. Okay, what's it like to get in and out of St. John's International Airport? How much does it cost me? How frequently can I get back to see my family in Sudbury? 
you know, we don't know. We don't know what interests one doctor or another, which is why, you know, the communities have to play an active role. Dr. Hayes has got to be creative. I imagine, yes, there'll have to be some thought uh, given to flexibility. We know the doctor's contract is coming up again next year. Feels like it was just yesterday that they settled it. So there's just so many moving parts of this competitive, dire need for doctors that I guess we have to be really specific. Like, and someone made an interesting point. They went over to the uh, convocation ceremonies at the Arts and Culture Center. 81 people walked across the stage to get their medical degree. How many of those 81 did we ask very specifically, what are your intentions? Because remember, there's a bit of a heated standoff meeting between the minister and the graduating class. How many of those said, yeah, I'm staying, and yes, I'm willing to go to Fogo Island or to Trapassi or wherever the case may be? We don't have that information, but that would be helpful. Oh, definitely. But I mean, like, uh, they wanted this whole collaborative care clinics and, you know, they're talking now about us being in a hub and spoke model. And we went through all that with them back in, uh, like, first part of May, which was, you know, a wonderful idea because we we definitely have to change how, how things are working. But, I mean, like, unless the doctor is key to that and that doctor has to cover a major amount of kilometers. So, like, when you when you look at that part of it, you know, you, you, there has to be some sort of incentive for them to come out here. Uh, I agree. Everything is being everything is being regionalized, which we understand. You know, like, I mean, let's face it, you can't give can't give a doctor to Pansy and a doctor to say Portia Coast South and a doctor to Renews, and you know, like, we have to be regionalized. I mean, that that only makes sense. But and I mean. As a community and as a region, we're willing to work with that. But, I mean, when they're coming back and now they're telling us, oh, no, well, now you don't have a doctor to cover now. We don't have a doctor as of the end of the month, I believe. We do have a nurse practitioner who's here three days. But, I mean, even even that is stopgap because, I mean, when you look at the amount of people that are pushing through the clinic, like, I mean, right now it is a wait time. I think the last time I heard, and that was last week, the first or first appointment is, I think, mid-July to get in to see a doctor. Well, I mean, so I'm on the wait list from Patient Connect NL to get into one of the collaborative care clinics. I've been on it for months. I don't know what's yep. going on. And, you know, those clinics can indeed be effective. There's no doubt about it. But they're probably only going to be effective in places with a significant population, right? Number one, because yep. you're going to have to have all those disciplines working in the same clinic. Secondly, it's not really going to do much if, for instance, the family doctor at the clinic on Monday Pond Road closed her practice in Mount Pearl and didn't take her patient roster with her. So just shuffling a doctor around as opposed to adding new faces, new doctors, new nurse practitioners, new LPNs, new social workers, new pharmacists, they were just moving around people that are already in place all the while not really addressing the shortage exactly and like and like uh, Rita said earlier you know we do have a doctor here who wanted the job who applied and wanted the job has has the history I'll say for lack of a better word in the community that you know she she actually has a piece of property here as well yeah like and you're looking at it you're saying like what's the issue you you wouldn't even negotiate with her like it doesn't make sense when it comes back to the community it doesn't make sense to us and and I mean like I said it doesn't just affect us like I mean people from Riverhead right from Riverhead right on down through right on like down the shore come up here to go to see a doctor because that was what was available 
And then you add in the same same issue with capacity without an ambulance. So they're piling up. That's an issue for another day. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Right? But I mean, you know, like if we had a doctor, at least you'd be like you had some kind of coverage. Understood. And, you know, I think this is the week where Fogo Island loses their doctor, and we know the issues surrounding uh, Dr. A.R. on Bell Island and so many other communities that people from those communities have, you know, contacted me. By and large, it's been email exchanges. But it is real, and it is everywhere. I mean, for instance, I live in the east end of town. Yeah. I don't have a doctor. I am waiting on that list at Patient Connect NL. I have been for months and still no luck, no communication. I have no idea where I am on the waiting list or what have you. So if it's a big issue in the capital city, you know full well what kind of issue it is in more rural, isolated communities. Oh, exactly. And and like I said, we've been fortunate because we did get covered for the last three years when Dr. McGarry retired. Mm-hmm. Like, we did get coverage. So, you know, but now they're saying, okay, that's not – because, I mean, let's face it, it's got to be expensive. You know, if they're they're coming, they're bringing two doctors in here and paying lodging for them and whatever. So they're saying, you know, we want we want to, and this collaborative care thing that they're trying to set up here, it has to do with the whole hub and spoke model, and they want to run it out of Holy Road. And we said we went back to them. And we said, look, you know, that's great to run it out of Holy Road, but we're too far from Holy Road, so why not make us a secondary hub? Which they they left up. They were delighted. You know, like, yeah, okay, we'll make you a secondary help. Like, we have the facilities here. We have a clinic. We have an x-ray. We have lab. You know, we have ultrasound machine. We have – there's a whole bunch of things that we still have here in Trassie, and unless we get somebody to use it, we're going to lose it. Really appreciate the time this morning, Peg. And thank you for yours. Anytime. All the best. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, just add to it, and this has been discussed during the show before, but we've got to figure this out. The territorial protections from province to province, making it more and more difficult for a doctor in Ontario, for instance, to consider spending their summer here on Fogo Island uh, and participating in a locum. Many doctors have given up. It's too time-consuming. It's too expensive. The paperwork is just mind-boggling, apparently. And that add into it the fact that, you know, even if you've been trained elsewhere in the world, Sometimes it's extremely difficult to transfer your credentials so you can practice here. There's a Ukrainian woman, doctor, who made her way here, whatever it was, a couple of months ago. Uh, what about her statuses? So if we can figure these things out, certainly the caliber of training at the medical school at the University of Dublin should be good enough to get your papers here. You know, a simple certification test and, you know, get your transcripts and simple stuff and away, to, uh, and away we go. Another doctor in the fold. Let's take a break. When we come back, Bill wants to talk about water. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show let's go line number three bill you're on the air hi patty how are you today doing okay bill how about you pretty good i was calling you last friday about my uh, water situation here in kilbride area oh yes okay yeah uh i got a well apparently from my house out to the curbstop there's all new line put in well from there out it's this black cheap plastic or uh, like it's almost like a tar paper pipe anyhow make a long story short the bottom has gone out of the pipe, and you can see the rocks sticking up through. And ever since Christmas, before Christmas, they told us just the bathroom, toilet paper down the basement, the toilet. Now, this is what we've been doing since before Christmas. You know, doing what you had to do, wipe yourself and put it in a plastic bag. Boy, oh boy. And, like, this has ongoing, you know. And now they're telling me that... To fix it, I got it. I'm responsible right out to the main, 65 feet from my house out. I'm responsible for it. 
And did you tell me that was 800 bucks? That's, that's what they're going to charge me, $800. Now, I know it's going to cost more than $800. Bucks. Absolutely, if we're talking 65 feet, no question. Yeah, that's right, but I still don't understand why I'm responsible for the city's trouble. Yeah, and I don't know any more about it today than I did when we last spoke. I don't know what the justification is for you to be on the hook for that, Bill. Uh, only thing I can see, uh, Patty, I don't know, and I'm just assuming what I'm going to say now. I'm, I'm just assuming. Maybe it's because when... St. John's took over Kilbride and the Gould. Things were substandard then, you know, in the infrastructure. And maybe now this is a little bit of money back that they can get by money from you just to help pay for the, for the infrastructure. You know, I don't know. I'm just assuming that. Well, it could be. I mean, I remember the stories coming from some uh, residents in one part of Kilbride where they just woke up one day, went to check the mail. There was a bill for $10,000 in their mailbox for the institution of some uh, uh, water and sewer services there and or some carb work. So, yeah, maybe it's a revenue recuperation uh, operation that's on the go. I don't know. I don't know how different would be, uh, for instance, on my street in my neighborhood in the East End. I really don't know. Thankfully, I haven't had to go down that road, knock on wood. But, well, yeah. yeah. But, anyway, I don't, I don't see why I should be responsible for that. I mean, I'm paying property tax. You know, that's, that's, uh, I was under the assumption that when you pay property tax, you get your water and sewer hooked up, and you get your garbage picked up, and your snow clearing, all that goes under your, your property tax. Yeah, and property tax in and of itself is regressive, and when we're trying to add infrastructure, certainly the property tax that the city brings in goes nowhere near required uh capital programs, infrastructure, like for instance, if you put a sidewalk right through the ghouls, my goodness, what would our property taxes be? That's right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in other words, now if I get the pot all out in the street, am I going to be responsible for that as well? Uh, no, I think you're covered for an individual pothole, Phil. Yeah, I know, but I mean, I lived in a lot of places. I never heard of this before. You know. I, I checked with Mount Pearl. They, they told me that I'm responsible for my curb stop in. From the curbside out, they're responsible. I spoke to Paradise, same thing there. But why St. John's, I don't understand. I don't know either. Uh, Dave, did we try to get a clarification on that issue? If not, let's follow up with the city and see if they can tell us exactly why it's so different here versus the surrounding communities just outside of the capital city. Uh, Bill, appreciate the time. Sorry you're going through this nuisance. It is a nuisance, sir, yeah. But anyhow, I just want to let you know something about it, let the public know that... Uh, you know, in my opinion, I don't think it's fair. I appreciate your time this morning as well, Bill. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sir. Take good care. Good All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, line number one. Grant, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Calling now about the uh, Kraft Hockeyville announcement uh, for the town of Twilling Gate that happened yesterday. Yeah, you know what? I meant to mention it this morning, so congratulations. It's a pretty whopping big prize, $250,000 in upgrades. Can't remember the name of the rink, the Hawkins Arena, maybe, in Twilight? George Hawkins, George Hawkins Arena, yes, Patty. Okay, and then you get, I think it's $10,000 worth of youth hockey equipment. That's another uh, excellent prize to get. But the curious fact, that, the curious part of the announcement was that the preseason game between the Habs and the Senators is going to be in Gander. Yeah, that's correct. Why is that? Uh, so we had people down from the NHL and the NHLPA, and obviously they took all kinds of rink measurements. And, you know, it's not the first time where they have uh, winning communities, I guess, have their game in a, you know, a nearby center that's probably a little bit bigger. But uh, yeah. 
you know, some of the safety concerns, I guess, Patty, boards, height of the glass, the kind of glass that we have, and, you know, our arena is a little bit smaller and stuff. So, uh, you know, uh, it is what it is, and, uh, you know, it's safer, I guess, uh, uh, that we have it in Gander, and it also holds more people. But, you know, we'd love to have it here, but uh, unfortunately, then uh, that's uh, part of the process. So so are the residents of Twillingate going to get some preferential access to tickets? Yeah, so while we're working on that, Patty, that's probably one of the biggest reasons that I'm calling is, uh, you know, I know, I understand Gander, the town of Gander, uh, they're getting many calls as well, and, you know, we're, you know, uh, receiving lots of messages, phone calls, emails, and uh, we're we're going to be working on a ticket distribution plan, and obviously we're going to go for, uh, we'll share that with a lot of people, and uh, we'll talk about uh, how we're going to break down those percentages, and, you know, yes, 28, you know, we're going to we're gonna look at that uh Quite closely, and you know, majority of people that we can get from Twillingate, uh, yeah, we'll we'll get them at the game, especially some kids. But uh, you know, there's going to be a registry, Patty. There's going to be a public drawing, and you know, but there's got to be a policy, I guess, or a plan to do that. And there's going to be a process. And our partners, uh, you know, they've done this probably 14 times already. So uh, you know, some everybody's not going to be happy, Patty. We'd love to have more people, obviously, from Central attend the game or even across the province, because everybody helped us vote and win. But uh, you know, we're just going to do it as fair as we can, but uh, priority will be for, yeah, Twillingate and surrounding residents for sure. Terrific. So uh, I'm actually involved in running and managing a rink as well with the Avalon Celtics Association. and We know how expensive it is to deal with things like glass and boards and the plant itself, what have you. What do you and your group have earmarked for the $250,000 inside the George Hawkins? So we did get that in 2020. That's when uh, we won the uh, prize, I guess, and... Uh, we did apply for funding, uh, I guess leverage that money and probably, you know, uh, get them, get more work done. Uh, so currently uh, we're just looking at some uh, roofing upgrades, and uh, but majority Patty's going to be uh, mechanical and electrical upgrades, and uh, hopefully they're going to be starting soon, even though it was announced in 2020. Uh, we did receive the equipment already, and that's been dis- distributed to a lot of young hockey players, which is, uh, which is good news, uh, 10,000 in gear from the NHLPA. Uh, and actually, we even uh, put it in order for some more gear, which we might be uh, getting for next season. So, yeah, lots of upgrades. Now the the old building is going to probably look the same, and uh, we might get some new signage. But uh, you know what? Mechanical and electrical upgrades they can uh, they can run the two hundred fifty thousand or one point two million, sorry, in totals pretty quickly. But uh, uh, just a couple of other things, Patty. Uh, again, we'll we'll share the distribution plan with every if, with every resident uh, to be on social media, obviously, and uh, and town of Twillingate's website and we'll make sure that everybody got that uh, in advance um, long before the game uh, other than that there's a fish fun and folk festival here in the end of July uh, there's going to be some alumni attending our craft hockey little booth on top of that uh, you know the Stanley Cup is coming to town as well Patty for our community celebrations and we're going to have probably a silent auction there's going to be community celebrations at the George Hawkins Arena and the Stanley Cup is going to be here for a day or a day and a half as well. So that's going to be pretty cool. And uh, we'll just update everybody, I guess, as we uh, get more details. Well, hopefully the Stanley Cup comes to the province twice this year. Once for Hockeyville and once at the, in the hands of Young Newhook. That would be awesome. Yeah, listen, you got that right. I said already that, uh, you know, you'll certainly be getting an invitation uh, to Twillingate if we uh, if he wins the Cup. But uh, that would be great news. But, you know, at Ottawa and uh, Montreal, you know, that's, uh, you know, two Canadian teams. We couldn't be happier. And I'm a Boston fan, Patty. I know you like the Habs. But, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll take the Habs anyway. You know, pretty storied franchise. But, uh you know, uh, it, is, it is great. Uh, you know, we could have got some uh, some other teams, but to get two Canadian teams, I guess, and uh, two East Coast teams, and, uh, you know, we're pretty happy. 
Yeah, so he should be. And you know, it's a funny thing. People think for Habs fans, the number one rival uh, is the Leafs. For me, it's the Bruins. Oh, and before yeah. that, it was the Nordique. The Leafs are in that conversation, but I really always felt it was Montreal-Boston was the major rivalry. Uh, yeah, oh, definitely. Same as me. And, uh, you know, years ago, I probably hated the Habs, but uh, <laughs> became, became, I became probably more of a player person. But, uh, you know, obviously a big Bruins fan. Love to have them there. But, uh, you know, just glad we got two Canadian teams. And we're going to put on a good show, obviously, for the community celebrations. Uh, and we're going to work with the Sound of Gander as well. And hopefully that event goes uh, extremely well. And so that's about all the news I have now. But, uh, you know... Uh, we'll share the information, I guess, as we uh, move forward, and uh, I'll keep you posted. I appreciate this. Congratulations once again, and the preseason game is coming up between the Montreal Canadiens and the Ottawa Senators, who have a really interesting young hockey team that's going to be better next year, I have a feeling. Uh, the game's coming up on the 6th of October in the town of Gander. Good to have you on, Grant. Not a problem. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Yeah, I saw that story. I meant to mention it this morning, and it slipped my mind. Craft Hockeyville coming back to the province. We've had a few winners there over the years, which is also great to see. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Joshua, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's good to be on. Happy to have you on. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, just a couple of quick points unrelated to each other, but the first of which is, uh, I guess you'd call it like that incident there in the ghouls the other night with the shooting or something, is it? Yeah, there was a shooting. Uh, the young fellow was arrested, 21-year-old Brandon Chafe. He had been released recently. He was arrested and charged with gun trafficking, but he had no criminal record, so he was out. And yeah, yesterday he allegedly shot and injured somebody. Yeah, and I mean, um, I'm just like I read the article on VOCM News last night, and I just kind of, you know, shook my head a bit with regard to the fact that apparently this guy was released on bail for doing something similar, and then he does it again, like a few days or weeks later. Is that is that correct? Am I well, missing something there? He got arrested on the 29th of May, if I remember the date correctly, and he was. Uh, it was for gun trafficking, not for actually shooting somebody, is my understanding. Okay. And the uh-huh. I don't know what the bail was or the surety that was posted, but, yeah, back on the street, and here we go. On the 20th of June, he sh- shot somebody in the ghouls. He's alleged to have done so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and alleged to, of course, but before everything is verified by the law or whatever. But like I said, Patty, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to come across as like, you know, too much of a hard ticket or unmerciful here myself but like i said i just kind of had to shake my head like wait this guy was released on bail for i guess a similar offense if you will even though you said he didn't actually shoot anyone the first time but yet for all he goes out and and does like another firearms related charge like so like i'm a parent now and just the idea that there's you know that there's and again i i don't i i want to choose my words here carefully because i don't want to sound like I said, unmerciful. But at the same time, if there's a if there's somebody out in the public who is recent re, recently released on bail, like it just kind of makes you wonder, like should should that even should that person even be on bail if they're if they have a high propensity to to do a similar offense? And I mean, we all live in the area of you know Newfoundland. We all want to be uh, feel safe in our communities, especially like I said parents and their children and 
again, am I missing something here, Patty? Should 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 he have been possibly detained until his actual court appearance the first time, or you know? Well, there's certainly an argument to be made for that, no doubt about it. I guess what the big upside for him in getting uh, bail was that he had no prior criminal record. And that, I believe, probably goes a long way when the judge makes a decision as to remand or to be released. But, I mean, proof's in the pudding. If he did what he's charged with doing and the shooting in the ghouls, then we ask ourselves some pretty big questions here. There's, you know, if you look at Her Majesty's Penitentiary, Apparently, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of the inmates are on remand. So I hope it's not the case that we're seeing people granted bail who could pose a significant risk to public safety who are getting bail because of capacity issues in the prison. That's, you know, I know that's a real issue, but boy, if we're making decisions based on the fact that where are we going to put you? Ooh, I'm not so sure that makes people anywhere in the city or the province feel safe when that might be the guiding light, you know? No criminal record. And no, he was not charged with shooting anybody, but he was charged with the firearms tra- firearms trafficking, and they made a pretty direct link to that string of violent crimes that we saw here. Random shooting in an apartment building, a stabbing on George Street, a car getting shot up. So... When you put it all together, there was certainly, to use your words, high propensity for him to commit this type of crime. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just to just to read that yesterday, it's like in hindsight, like, wait, this is the second time that this has happened so recently. You know, it's just like, boy, oh boy, like, it 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 kind of gives you a bit of concern. I mean, obviously, any crime would anyway, but just. You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> I do, and I don't think anyone's taking this as harsh. We're asking pretty fair questions about, yeah. you know, how things unfold in the courts. And mm. this is not to say that the judge at the original circumstance made some sort of grievous error. There's parameters set forward in the criminal code, and it's one of the key uh, parameters is whether or not you have a criminal record and a history of okay. violent crime or what yeah. have you. And with no criminal record and nothing yet to be proven in the courts, I guess that makes it a pretty standard arrangement for him to be granted bail not that it's worked yeah. out yeah and of course every every person is different every situation is different and everyone has you know their own story background everything else and and you know i'll be the first to admit of course i i didn't know and i don't know all the details to this particular situation not the least of which is the fact that like you said he did not have a previous criminal record i wasn't aware of that it's just kind of unfortunate that you know, not only did this happen on Sunday or whatever recently, but that this apparently is is linked to a a, a more recent, or sorry, a, a you know a recent uh, similar offense there with the uh, firearms trafficking or whatever, right? With the same individual, so it's just a little bit uh, unnerving that way, right? Well, I I get that, and what's also I think what's the right word, sad about all of this, is all the arrests that were made with that original string of crimes, and there's some sort of standoff between a gang in Paradise and a gang here. They're all so young. This guy's 21. A couple of the arrests that happened a couple weeks ago, there was a couple of 20-year-olds. So, man, oh, man, I guess there's probably a reason why you don't have a criminal record because you've only been an adult for a couple of years. But when we know, and guaranteed some of this is driven by drugs, it's got to be, and you're so young and you're already involved to that extent where you're armed to the teeth. I mean, and then the, the police went on to tell CRNC that they confiscated a bunch of uh, weapons that were printed with a 3D printer. So the prevalence of firearms in our community and surrounding area, and I don't know what to say about the rest of the province on this front, but it's getting to the point where 
I'm not so sure we have a very clear understanding of just how common this is and just how many members of the criminal element are armed to the teeth. And in addition to that, with the age of these alleged offenders, is they're not the criminal masterminds behind all of this. There's got to be, you know, some real hardened criminals that are running this particular show responsible for the importation of the product to begin with and the access to guns. So it's bigger than just some 20 and 21 year olds getting in trouble. And that's a, you know, a great point too, Patty. Like, you know, it's, they might just, with, with regard to how many people are involved, this might just be the tip of the iceberg, if you will. Um, you know, and it's sad by, right? Like, I mean, any, any crime is, is unfortunate and needs to be, you know, brought to justice and everything else. But by, like, on a human level, like, sometimes I just step back and, and think to myself, like, by, like, with these individuals, like, they're human beings. Like, you know, like I said earlier, everyone's got their own story, their own background. But it kind of makes you wonder, like, where did it all go wrong? Not Not to say that, not to try to oversimplify things either, but, like, you know, I'm sure this uh, – I'm sure this fellow wasn't, you know, playing in the sandbox when he was two or three years old, thinking he was going to friggin' shoot somebody at age twenty. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do. You know, you know it probably happens. Boy, like it's sad, right? It is. It probably happens the same or very similar way, time after time. Is those who are the organized criminals, they'll know who the street level dealers are that are selling weed by the gram. They get approached and they dangle the prospects of money in front of them, and the, of course, there's nothing quite as convincing as money to be willing to do or take pardon me to take the next step because if i was willing to sell a gram of weed and someone says well sell this gram of cocaine for me uh we'll we'll give you some weapons to protect yourself and the money is x y and z things like that just snowball out of control so quickly yeah slippery slope man i mean it's uh it's sad and i i think and and like i said as a parent now too i'm I'm more acutely aware of this like i I think half the battle, if not more than half the battle, in terms of your your own personality and your own kind of values and conduct, is who you hang around with, right? Like you know the the crowd and the mob mentality and the monkey see monkey do and the peer pressure. You know, it's, it's I was fortunate enough to grow up with a, a circle of mostly Christian friends, actually, and you know the <laughs> the first time I touched a beer was like age twenty three. You know, like I, I wasn't exactly a what most people might call a hard ticket or something. But I think a lot of that is attributable to not only my friends, but like, you know, my, my family life. I never, I never really grew up with much of the hard stuff. And, you know, me and my friends would, wouldn't really get into too much trouble type thing. So like I said, I was fortunate that way to, to not be exposed and, and influenced by a lot of these harder things. But, you know, it's like I said, I, I think a lot of this is, you know, coming down to a, a personal or human level is, who you who you get involved with and who you hang around with and all that, right? I think I mean, that's I'm absolutely. Sure I'm sure most people probably agree with that anyway, right? But uh, you know, it's uh, it's important, I guess, to to have positive influences in your life as much as you can, you know, and that type of thing, right? But anyway, Patty, uh, I was going to talk about something else too, but I'll probably park it there for now and, and maybe call back another time with the other topic. But for this Brandon fellow, like you know. Hopefully he, you know, like I said, justice is important, but hopefully going forward, you know, I, I don't know if he'll ever hear the segment, but, you know, one of the one of the quotes I like to think of, like, your past does not have to determine your future. So, you know, that's 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 a quote that we can all kind of maybe take take to the bank. And uh, like I said, you know, justice needs to be administered. Yes, but hopefully he'll however, you know, whatever happens, maybe be able to turn his life around and uh, eventually and uh 
you know, that type of thing too, right? But um, Well, we have to, as a country, do more on the way of, re- of rehabilitation because far too often now, if you spend a significant amount of time in prison, you come out as a more hardened criminal than you were when you went in. You may also come out so disillusioned and you have no transition supports that all of a sudden the next available option is right back to what landed you in prison in the first place. So there's a lot to be said for that. You know, judge for your best day versus judge for your worst day. And yes, punishment is required. Of course it is. And nobody disagrees with the fact you need to have see people punished. But we kind of turn our back on a lot of the best practices regarding rehabilitation that we see in other countries. Rates of recidivism. You know, people think that this all comes across as being soft on crime. No. What we're trying, I think the goal is to have increased public safety. And so if there's ways to increase public safety, that doesn't make you some left-wing loon ideologue. It makes you someone who's willing to look at what works. And if we deal with recidivism rates based on things, whether it be rehabilitation practices while you were incarcerated, whether it be by separating out drug courts from the regular courts, whether it be separating sexual assault uh, uh, trials outside of the normal court system, whether it be about transition supports upon your release, because they're all getting out. In this country, you're getting out. So unless we try to make the place safer, as opposed to just pretending that punishing people is going to make us safer, it never does. In parts of the United States where they have capital punishment, murder rates don't go down. People don't make those determinations. If the prospect of spending two years in prison versus four years in prison for whatever type of crime, do we think that actually makes the criminal element decide that, no, I'm not going to do that all of a sudden because I can't spare four years of my life versus two? No, it just yeah. never works. So we got to figure this bloody stuff out before too long. For sure. And I think that's an important part of the uh, conversation too. You know, b- b- besides like ideologies and, and, and opinions, like you're saying, look at the actual statistics and, you know, the facts with regard to what actually deters people versus, you know, what works, what doesn't from a, from just just the statistical perspective and, and looking at the, that type of thing too, right? Best practices are best practices. To pretend that we can translate them to this problem, province and this country is a pretty weak argument to make. Because if it can work, it can work here. We don't have to recreate the wheel, reinvent the wheel. We don't have to drum up some uh, fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pants nonsense that we're just taking taking things on a wing and a prayer. No, we can look at what works. And certainly, hard on crime. Tough on crime has become a political thing as opposed to criminal justice. It's about what party you support, by and large, versus what works, what doesn't. Yeah, and I think oftentimes, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing or one way or the other. It can be like, okay, let's dissect this. Let's figure out what's ideally working, you know, for more, you know, for for argument's sake, 100% or 90% working. Okay, we'll keep that stuff. Stuff that's completely broken, 0% working, we'll change that. And stuff that's 50-50 working, well, we'll we'll adjust that. We'll reevaluate, you know, and have these conversations. And, again, not all or nothing, break it or leave it, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, just to, you know, evaluate it and uh, and see what's working and keep that. And if it's not or if it could be changed, then have be open to those conversations. And not that it has to be an argument. It's not in the ball and everything else, but just to simply – be mature about these conversations and you know we're all adults type thing and even i guess as, as, you know from the laws perspective or you know the parliament politicians you know just to have these conversations and to you know evaluate go forward and hopefully make things better right well if we ask ourselves this, the fundamental question on every front is what's happening today working is the status quo working if the answer is no then why would we just lean on it and you know when we have it as a one side of the political spectrum is soft on crime, one is tough on crime. 
Neither has worked. It just hasn't. Not because I say so, because the numbers are clear. They just are as clear as can be. So let's just deal with reality and try to have a sensible conversation. To say that someone is a wuss because they think that we should try to do more to rehabilitate someone, well, how big a wuss am I when that person who we didn't do enough to rehabilitate or help them with their mental illness or help with their drug addiction, they get out and do something more serious? Why are we even pretending that that's an option, a realistic option? Uh, Joshua, I appreciate the time and the conversation. Thanks for this. I appreciate you, too, and uh, keep up the good work, you and your team. Patty, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Joshua. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, uh, again, it shouldn't be boiled down to the fundamentals of, well, that's a liberal thing or a conservative thing. Let's boil it down to does it work thing. Because if we had those types of conversations and we didn't allow ourselves to be bamboozled by political rhetoric, because that's basically all this is, you know, who's soft on crime, who's hard on crime, we have to ask ourselves the question, does either actually work? Right? And by and large, the answer is no. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You can be as tough on crime as you like. Does that mean that the uh, community is safer? Not necessarily, because they're getting out. <laughs> That's the one thing you can bet on. They're getting out. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Well, Joshua's had the last word for this morning, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.